0: Good morning everyone or good afternoon or good evening Depending upon where you are on this rotating globe Welcome to another, and I mean it, exciting edition Of The Other Side of Midnight We have so many interesting mysteries to lay out for you tonight As well as the further planning for our major February 4th event Where we are going to transmit to someone Not from here, quoting a uh, friend of mine, uh, from Stonehenge, from the center of Stonehenge and the Aubrey Circle and other geometries um, over the period of about an hour on the morning at about eight o'clock local British time, um, next, Saturday, next Friday, next Friday morning, and then Saturday night, we're going to compile as much as we can reasonably analyze in the period of time that would be uh, intervening, um, and kind of show you and tell you and play for you some of the stuff that we get, if we get anything. I mean, we don't know that we're going to get anything, because this is the first time, as far as I know, that what we're trying to do has ever been done, and we will describe in great length this morning, again, for those of you who are new to the program, and I know there are new listeners, because I can see it in the numbers we're going to describe for you what it is we're doing, how we got to where we are, and um, where we're going to go with this, because technically speaking, we're not quite sure who we're talking to, and there's been a stunning new mainstream entry into the mystery, which David opened the door to, and then at something like 5 o'clock this morning, I had one of those major research aha moments where it was, oh, my God, look at that. And we're going to show you the that later in the program. And I guarantee it will be as much an aha for all of you as it was was for me. Because when I shared it with David, he had the precisely appropriate reaction like, oh, my God, look at that. Before we get to all of that, I want to direct all you new folks to the Other Side of Midnight website. Uh, not quite sure how you're listening. You can listen um, on the URL, which is theothersideofmidnight.com. You can listen on Blog Talk, on TalkStream. Uh, I don't know offhand the other ways you can listen, but there are a, pl- a plethora of those ways. Anyway, if you're listening and you're not on the website, you want to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. That's our URL. Click on that. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather um, aggressively, Talking to Ancient Extraterrestrials Part 2 with astonishing new information on Tonga. Yes, we have some amazingly cool, and if I must say so myself, insightful new news about Tonga. We also have something incredibly interesting and highly relevant. That's about 4,000 light years away from the Earth, away from the solar system, toward the center of the galaxy we're going to talk about, which turns out, by the numbers, to be part of this entire ET conversation. And, um, I mean, this is going to be cool. This is one of those shows that you're going to look back and you're going to say, how could it get much cooler than that? So. You're at the website. You're looking at the uh, banner, Open Hailing Frequencies, Talking to Ancient Extraterrestrials, Part 2. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under it, you'll see um, fast links to items. Click on my name. And you'll see that we've got the first two items relate to Hubble. I'm sorry, Webb. See, I'm so used to saying Hubble for years and years and years and years. The Webb Space Telescope few days ago, they successfully reached the L2 position, and they fired the onboard thrusters to accelerate. Now, you might say, why didn't they fire to slow down? Because the thrusters were on the wrong side of the telescope. In order to slow down, they would have had to turn the entire telescope 180 degrees, which, of course, would completely blow the reason for the five-layer solar blanket, the sun shield that they deployed a couple of weeks ago, so they deliberately underperformed with the rockets, the uh, uh, Ariane, you know, five rocket and the midcourse correction, so that when they got close to the destination, this region of space behind the Earth, about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the Sun, called L2 or Lagrange, it was a French celestial mechanics expert who figured this stuff out centuries ago they had to accelerate just a little bit to go into this halo orbit around this Lagrange point um, which is a kind of a region, a center of of space geometrically arranged uh, uh, right behind the Earth um, looking away from the Sun and they will now orbit in the period of I think it's like a month or so it takes to complete this orbit, the orbit, the halo orbit around this mythical point in space, this geometric point is much larger, about four times larger. Uh, well, maybe not four times, maybe it's two or three than the orbit of the moon around the earth. I mean, this is a very large halo and there's a two or three other spacecraft that NASA has placed in this region in prior years, all of them telescopes that require them to be in constant view of the Earth and um, in, in, a, in a region that was kind of stable, where you only need to tweak with the uh, thrusters every once in a while to remain in your halo orbit. And it will remain there for the life of the telescope, which now, based not just on the electronics. But mostly on the onboard fuel situation, they seem to be good to go, barring any unforeseen disasters, for the next 20 years in that orbit, and they will be in a position to constantly be sending via the very high-powered radio system on board with a new focused antenna they deployed a couple days ago. Um, I think it's the K band which is above S-band, very high frequency, high bandwidth, there will be in 24-7 continuous communication between the telescope and the Earth. Now, you might ask, kind of, you know, academically, if it's a million miles away in deep space, orbiting in this huge halo orbit, how long does it take for a signal from Webb to get to Earth And how long do commands, given that it's about four times the distance of the Earth-Moon system, meaning it's four times the distance of the moon, and the moon is about one and a quarter light seconds away, it's easy. The one-way radio wave uh, slash light speed travel time from web to Earth or Earth to web is about five seconds. That's a very long distance call but not as far away as you know like 20 minutes to mars or 15 minutes to venus depending on which side of the sun it's on or an hour to jupiter um, or two hours to saturn you know in other words it's literally Webb is literally in our backyard literally in the backyard of the earth and it's going to do astonishing things so for the next several months you will hear reports, and you'll be able to read them weekly in our item number one, they are now going to be tuning the mirrors. How do you tune a mirror? Well, remember, this is not one huge 22-foot-wide primary mirror-reflecting telescope composed of 18 mirrors in the shape of hexagons that are paraboloids. They're all perfectly curved to be little telescopes in and of themselves, a little telescope with a four-foot wide mirror. Oh, my God, my first reflection telescope had a six-inch wide mirror. Anyway, um, what they need to do is to tilt and pan and focus each of these sub-telescopes, all 18, so that they ultimately all converge as one super mirror, primary mirror, 22 feet, give or take wide, focused on the secondary, which will then reflect the light down into the uh, telescope itself, into the electronics, to where uh, the uh, instrumentation is located. And all of this will take about uh, three months to do all these corrections. We know all the actuators work. We know all the motors work. In fact, if you go to item number one, you'll read a blog um update from the uh, project manager of the entire web telescope system, and he even has some lyrical quotes there from a very famous uh, uh line of poetry, so that is worth reading. Number two is simply a where is web? It kind of is a nuts and bolts version of tracking where web is there's a new three d solar system model that will allow you to see physically in a computer animation, what I described verbally for all you folks on radio. So that's kind of moving in the right direction as situation on Earth is going in very weird directions. We're going to talk tomorrow night with Dr. Richard Spence, who's our uh, resident historian, about the background to Ukraine. What is going on with Ukraine? Well, don't get me started. It's incredibly controversial. It's confusing, it's got personalities, it's got geopolitics, it's got money, it's got pipelines, it's got it's a mess. But tomorrow night, for three hours, Richard will help us sort it out. And I guarantee you, as Stephanie Rule says um, every morning, that after you listen to Richard tomorrow night for three hours, you will be, at least about Ukraine, smarter. I know that I will be, so I'm looking forward to that. Item number three in radio with pictures and my items. Um, Right now, as we're enjoying really amazing weather here in the great American Southwest, there is a major blizzard working its way up the east coast of the United States. Thousands of flights have been canceled. Something like 10 million people have been uh, put under blizzard warnings all up and down the east coast from like Washington north through Nova Scotia. Um, Item number three is kind of an updated link so you can take a look and see um, what's happening. If you have relatives or friends, family, you know, uh, anyone you care about on the East Coast, uh, you might want to check in with them and make sure that they're warm, they're dry, they're staying home. Being on the roads during a blizzard is nuts. I lived in New England for many, many, many years um, as a kid growing up and, you know, kids love snowstorms. They they have no idea of how dangerous a real blizzard can be, especially when you still have, as we still do, centralized power with huge power plants and, you know, high tension grids and, you know, feeder lines and, you know, utility poles outside homes. I mean, we need to get onto the hyperdimensional physics you know, something the size of a bread box in everybody's basement, including apartment houses. So we, you know, decentralize this grid nonsense. Uh, even the uh, uh, potential upgrades to the grid, which are part of the uh, infrastructure bill that passed a couple of months ago in the House and the Senate and was signed by the president, it's it's just reinforcing the kind of status quo grid. It's upgrading it but it's not radically changing it. Um, That's to come in the future if and when this physics uh, is finally revealed, which kind of elegantly takes me to item number four. Item number four is about Tonga, and there is a stunning animation that uh, Kintia helped uh, put up on the page tonight, so you can actually see this satellite image, this Japanese satellite that recorded in real time the – Eruption of the um, material from the floor of the sea uh, at the surface of the ocean, and this extraordinary shock wave racing out in all directions uh, at the speed of sound. It was so intense that it's uh, literally visible there in the um, in that incredibly interesting color satellite image. Number four. I'm sorry. Number five. Is another animation. We couldn't get that one uh, to work on the page, so you just click on the link. That is a enhanced global view from, I believe, one of the GOES satellites, um, uh, which is uh, in orbit due to NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which is kind of like the wet NASA as they used to call it. That is an e- even more stunning image because with some enhancement, you can see the triple shockwave from Tonga's eruption racing across the entire Pacific Ocean and across the east, I'm sorry, the west coast of the United States and South America. And it's a, it, 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 it's a loop. You can see it when you click on the link again and again and again. The energy in this event was stunning. In fact, that takes us to item number six. Scientists, geologists, geophysicists, meteorologists, All those people that look at the Earth, they are totally baffled by the fury and the nature of the Tonga explosion. I know we've talked about this on the show, and I know the mainstream news is talking about it as an underwater volcano that kind of just blew its top. Oh, no, it is so much more. And oddly enough, it is directly relevant to what we're going to be talking about about tonight, vis-a-vis ET communications and the numbers. It all comes back to the numbers, which leads me to item number seven. Number seven, Um, a few days ago, Nature, which is the preeminent uh, scientific journal for scientists all over the planet, published, I think it was on the 26th, a paper from a group of radio astronomers the lead scientist who is an Australian radio astronomer um, with the first name Natasha, I think her second name is Hurley Wright, I think. And we'll correct that as we get through the program if I'm, you know, getting that wrong. Back in 2018, in January, this is now 2022, back in 2018, the Murchison Array, which is a very large array of radio telescopes, literally in the middle of nowhere in the outback of Australia, listening to low frequency, as astronomers defined it, uh, radio emission. It's it's a unique facility in that literally in a very brief period of time, like, you know, a few days, it can map the entire sky in these low frequency uh, wavelengths uh, in the megahertz range. Radio astronomers consider low frequencies um, uh, megahertz which is an interesting uh, detail. Anyway, back in January of 2018, as they were doing this survey of these low-frequency radio sources all over the sky, they picked up something really, 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 really weird. And as you can see there from the headline, mysterious energy source unlike anything astronomers have seen before. Well, well. Science moves on. So they watched and they recorded and they watched and they recorded. And for three months, this thing, every 18.18 minutes, that's 18.18 minutes, like a, like a lighthouse, would light up locally with radio energy that was picked up by this r- array of radio telescopes in Australia um, for about a minute. And it would become brighter than almost any other source, bar two or three, in the entire, what astronomers call, the radio sky. And then it would go away. And 18.18 minutes later, bingo, there it was again, for about a minute. This went on and on and on, day and night, day and night, for a little over three months, and then it disappeared. And has never been heard from again. And if you read the story, which you can click on that link, and we're going to talk a great deal about some of the background physics. It is weird. It's wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderfully weird. But that's not the best part. The best part is due to the um, trepid, courageous outreach by one of our guests tonight, David Sarita. He actually got in touch with Natasha, the lead astronomer, doing the survey, and she and he have been exchanging emails back and forth with additional information. Um, and have we got some surprises for you there. So without further ado, let me introduce who was on the show tonight. We have David Sarita, who is our numbers guy. Um, David, of course, uh, has been working with Sacred Frequencies and um you know sacred geometry and all kinds of uh very elaborate mathematical and geometric systems for most of his professional life he knows how to do these number calculations in his sleep and um he has turned up some really remarkable things now i'm going to give an abbreviated you know bio on each of our guests because if you want to go to the actual biographies again you go to the Othersideofmidnight.com Click on the banner for tonight For Saturday, June uh, July, July I'll get this right January Don't get ahead of yourself, Oakland January 29th, that's tonight Click on uh, that banner That takes you to the guest page Under the banner on the guest page You will see fast links to bios So each of the bios of our guests tonight Is listed there In um, particular order We have Maria Wheatley back with us Maria, in less than a week now, is going to be conducting the next phase of our open-hailing frequencies experiment, literally from the center of Stonehenge. She is a dowser, second-generation dowser. Um, Her late father was a a dowser of the first rate. In fact, he was a guest on the show right at the beginning of The Other Side of Midnight, and that's how we were so... uh, uh, shall we say, um, gratified to find Maria uh, taking his place and, and then some. And she has been an incredibly interesting guest over the years uh, that we've been talking to her about uh, ancient monuments all over Britain and beyond. Um, in addition to Maria, we have Jonathan Womack, who is a um, computer specialist. He does incredible animations Um He also uh, is a writer. He's got some really interesting books out there. You can find them by going to his bio on the uh, guest page, and you'll see various uh, uh, links to his work, including something he has called the OBE Show, the Out-of-Body Experience Show, because John is an experiencer. He routinely takes journeys out of body, and we've had him on discussing some of what he has encountered uh, over the past several years. Uh, moving on down, uh, Ron Gerbron is with us. Ron is our resident generalist. He knows something about almost everything. And this afternoon, we got into a bit of a, uh, a kind of a tit for tat regarding one of my pet peeves, full in the mainstream, commentators, columnists, news people, reporters, editorialists, anchors, everybody misusing the word fulsome now we are not going to go there tonight but you know he and i kind of had an interesting uh, discussion about the misuse the gross overwhelming misuse in the mainstream of the very simple concept of fulsome like fulsome praise it's not what most people think when they're saying it they're using it totally totally wrong and I frankly can't understand why, because someone should, um, should correct someone and should kind of get around the circle. We have things called texts and emails these days. And we have uh, Thomas Mathers with us. Thomas is an award-winning uh, producer. He writes music. He produces music. He also is intimately familiar, having spent many years in Ecuador with ancient geometry, ancient sacred sites, native um, traditions, and has brought his expertise in production and technology to bear on some of the return messaging we've been getting from the uh, Moa broadcasts, and he has some new material to share with us tonight. Plus, he's kind of the backbone of setting up the technology with Keith Morgan for how we're going to do the next phase, uh, phase two of what we're all involved in next week. And now, last but not least, Michael Hill is with us. And the reason that I've invited Michael back is because I want to loop back to the beginning. How did we wind up doing broadcasts on the frequencies we've chosen to a mua mua? What do they open up in terms of sacred geometry and uh, uh, sacred measurements and an entree to the physics, the same physics which ultimately is going to be, I believe, the explanation for Tonga, wait till you see, as well as this new mysterious, bizarre radio source 4,000 give or take light years away. Michael is an award-winning musician. He's a filmographer. He's had UFO experiences for years, and he's been incorporating these cosmic harmonic frequencies into his music as well as into an actual piece of hyperdimensional technology, which according to some of the sources that I uh, turned him on to, measurably, physically, in terms of laboratory data, actually works. So, um, let me see. Uh, what I'm going to do is I want everyone to come on and say hi, and if you have anything that's really burning on your minds uh, before we get to the substance of tonight, now is the time. we got about four minutes the bottom of the hour so let me start by introducing david
1: yeah hi hi everybody um it's really an incredible auspicious day today there's a lot going on
0: (laughs) in the world you are the master of understatement mr sarita okay thomas (laughs) are you here
2: i sure am
0: and maria
3: yes hello
0: oh crystal clear uh michael
4: I am here, and thank you for having me, and hello,
0: everybody. As my grandmother used to say, it's nice being had. John?
5: Mm-hmm. Yes, we have two mus- musicians on the show tonight. I find
0: that very cool. Actually, we have more. Remember, I do have that background on Columbia Records. Anyway, um, and last but not least, Ron, are you with us? Uh,
6: Yes. And Richard, guess what? Pad? Oh, Richard, guess what?
0: Uh you're fading Hello? away. Oh, you're really how's fading. This?
6: I'm having trouble with the headset. Oh, there we are. Can there you we hear are. me?
0: Okay. Now we hear okay. you loud. Uh, the, loud. Yeah,
6: the, there's a guess what? The word fulsome in an American dictionary has a secondary <laughs> lesser meaning of uh overwhelming. It's a contextual thing, but the English dictionaries, which you would think should get first shot at, uh, don't have that option there.
0: It's confusing. It means it fake. It's... Giving someone fulsome most... praise. But well, most people don't. Obviously, most mainstream people who go to Harvard and Yale and Caltech and wherever and have huge paying jobs with millions of dollars per year, they don't know fulsome means fake praise. Not real, not full, not so encompassing. And, yeah. and, and, and and they use it overwhelmingly again and again and again in the totally wrong way. And for me, it's like fingers on a blackboard. Ah! Anyway, we are at the bottom of the hour. See how that elegantly took up two minutes? Um, good, so what we we'll do when we come back, um, David and I are going to spring on you. Um, actually, no, we're not going to do that. Nope, nope. We're going to start with Michael, because I want to start with, you know, as the lawyers say, build Foundation. Michael is kind of the reason we're doing what we're doing. And so I want him to stand up there and take the credit or the blame and describe to us the mysteries of 432. So without further ado, let me just tell everyone that you are literally on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And We are embarking on an extraordinary journey, a voyage beyond, and in this case, the voyage appears to have a stop out there tonight, like 4,000 light years from the Earth, because as you're going to see, and maybe hear, someone, 4,000 light years away, appears to know what we know tonight here on Earth in the form of ET radio communication. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
7: It's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but what if I use the wrong term? I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went to him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, It was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning, that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realise, you know, when you're phoning up the police and grasping on your neighbours and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbours and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kynthia, Timothy and Aneta and I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast.
0: And welcome back everyone to The Other Side of Midnight Well that was a movie From decades ago Brilliant movie, Richard Dreyfuss And a whole cast of Very interesting people Kind of some cameos By an old friend of mine, Alan Hynek Who appears at the very End of the film It's about obviously humankind's First modern encounter With extraterrestrials And how the Hailing frequencies between these two cultures were opened with secret, top secret, hidden clandestine deep space government efforts on the dark side of the moon at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Now, you flash forward the film decades, and what's really bizarre is that we're involved now in the middle of something Which, when you put it through certain tone generators, sounds kind of like this.
8: We have a translation airlock on their audio signal. We're taking over this conversation now.
0: It turns out, across decades, it's ultimately all about the frequencies. So, Michael, how did you get us, as Laurel and Hardy, another fine mess you've gotten me into?
4: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, going back to, let's say, probably around uh, 2008, being a musician, I had heard of uh, a subject called Verdi's A. Verdi was a musician and a scientist, and he started tuning his A note on his orchestras and all of his instruments to A equals 432 hertz. What people need to know is our musical uh, standard reference now is A equals 440 hertz. Interestingly enough, you find out that was done by a Nazi uh a scientist and I think that they knew what they were doing. Um, with new science, it's about the most disharmi- disharmonious uh, frequency that they could have chose. But anyhow, I thought this was interesting. So right at, you know, uh, in 2008 is when I also was taken into the fold of uh, the reverse engineering division and remote viewers for the NSA. So one of the first things I asked them was, you know, uh what about this 432 stuff? And uh he had put me, this is, I'm talking about the leader of this group. His name was A.R. Borden. And to Wingmakers fans, he was known as 15. And that was just, he was the 15th person to hold that position. It was nothing other than that but he had put me into contact with a musician within their group and we'll just call him Mr. Price. And, uh, he was a really great musician, but one thing he said really stuck with me. And he said, I don't even know how you guys can keep, keep your instruments in tune when you're tuned to 440." I was like, what's that about? You know? Uh, but simultaneously then, uh, in late 2008, is when I'm at the Anunnaki. Uh, and because of that, uh, that's why you know, all this context started with the reverse engineering team as well. And um, the A.R. Borden said, during this course of concentration, you're gonna learn about cosmic harmonious frequencies. He said, you see, to create matter, you need specific frequencies. 432, obviously. But not only do you need specific frequencies, you need specific frequencies in combination, which would be a chord or a note. And this was in 2008. I I didn't crack the code until 10 years later. But uh, that's how it all started for me. And then after that, what happened was I met the Anunnaki in 2008, and as crazy as it seems, they told me we were once known as the Anunnaki in your past.
0: and you Okay, were once my, now- Michael, hang on, hang on. For those mm-hmm. who are just joining us, who may have been under a rock for the last 20, 30, 40 years, never cracked Sitchin, who are the Anunnaki?
4: Well, I guess you could, many names, right? The Elohim, the Watchers, the Shining Ones. They were the ones that were uh, spoken of in the Sumerian clay tablets pre-Egypt. You know, their story written in stone, and it's just our history. And for some reason, it seems like it's been kept from humanity up until ancient aliens. Um, that's interesting, though, because when I met them, at the end of our conversation, uh, the individual I was speaking with, who turned out to be Marduk of the Anunnaki, he said, well, it must be time for... Uh, mankind to know this and i said well how are you gonna start revealing this you know and um ancient aliens started the next year hmm. and
0: up up until that
4: point no one knew what the anunnaki so, was
0: well not no one but a very tiny, well, tiny handful it, out of seven billion people okay so the anunnaki they're not aliens they're not bug-eyed monsters they're not eight-legged or armed octopi that have intelligence. In other words, they're basically, they look like us. They talk like us. They appear like us. They appear to be very, very, very advanced humans, right? Mm
4: -hmm. Yes.
0: Which means in my model, they are family.
4: I totally agree. They agree. Um, That was one of the big dividing, uh, dividing factors within the Anunnaki family because some of us, some of them on Inky's side, which we can get into that, um, they were very – they looked at us as family. But some of the other side of the family viewed humanity as never going to step up into our I am, never going to step into our sovereignty. And we would always give our energy and our you know sovereignty away to illusionary outside sources and always misuse our power over others, ourselves, and this planet. And so that – Those two different outlooks is what makes up the conflict within the family. And a lot of people think when you talk about the Anunnaki, you know, I know a lot of people have thrown them under the proverbial bus of the ones behind all the problems and all the secret societies. But what you'll find is Inky's side, um, now with scientific data, is intertwined into the Native American First Nations Specifically, um, the listeners can Google haplogroup X2A, which is a DNA uh, bloodline. You might might want to spell that. uh, Haplogroup is H-A-P-L-O-G-R-O-U-P, haplogroup, and then dash X2A. And what you'll find is haplogroup X2A is only in 3% of the Native American First Nations. But when you travel back in time, you'll find more haplogroup X2A in the giant skeletal remains that have been removed out of these mound builder sites. Then if you keep going further back in time, where you find the highest concentration of haplogroup X2A, it's going to tell you where it came from, right? Well, it's the hills of Galilee, Um, you know, Lost tribe of Israel, sangria, holy grail.
0: So it's a, so it's a Semitic genetic pattern that shows up in the Middle East. Yes. And it's
4: very interesting because this throws our history books upside down because (laughs) that bloodline did not enter through any migration route of normal, what we consider normal migration. And this is just all science, you know, and that's, Luckily, I guess uh, that's been thrown in my lap, and I'm in the middle of revealing this reality to the world. Um, I was gifted a flash drive by Zachariah Sitchin, and it took me down a rabbit hole, but what was contained in that flash drive was some artifacts. And here, at the time of his passing, he was tracking down the Anunnaki human hybrid bloodline into the Native American First Nations, and uh, there was some artifacts on the flash drive that are now known as the Michigan artifacts, and it tells the migration of this bloodline, and it's very interesting because again, a lot of people put the Anunnaki under the proverbial bus of you know the bad guys, but uh, you find out Inky's side intertwined into the Native American First Nations, and uh, well, you know, people, Michael,
0: that the worst fights in our in history, in human history are always within families.
4: Yes, yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of info. We could probably do a whole show just on that, so we could do that in the future. And we will. Um, But what happened was, um, because I met them, and I'm talking in the flesh, I went to a festival called Sirius Rising in New York and uh, met an individual who Marduk was coming through, and you're the only person on the planet That I've actually disclosed who that is. And he's a high-ranking member of NASA, was part of the Apollo missions and technology uh, acquisition group. And uh, he's the one that Marduk spoke to me through. And um, so that started this communication. And they told me, we were once known as the Anunnaki in your past, and you were once known as Ia Inki, the water bearer. And mind you, that made no sense to me whatsoever, because I didn't even know what an Anunnaki was, so I sure didn't know what a water bearer is, you know. (laughs) Like someone came up to you and go, hey, by the way, you're the Easter bunny. Hope you know that. (laughs) All right. But uh, sure enough, now, because of, you know, you arranging for NASA to look into my work and finding it does resurrect and revitalize dead municipal tap water back into living water, I can look someone in the eye now and go, guess what? I am the water bearer, (laughs) you know? Would you like to see the scientific data? But anyhow, none of this made any sense to me back in 2008. So early 2009, I put out a request to these beans, and I said, listen, if you are who you say you are and I am who you say I am, encode the name Ia Inky into a crop circle. And I can tell you I will take – notice i'm a student of the subject and that'll be my confirmation that you are who you say you are and i am who you say i am now how did you
0: communicate this mentally
4: uh telepathically okay. i've learned i'm a avid uh
0: meditator
4: and also learned a lot of you know um visualization you know meditation techniques okay and um so This was, you know, early 2009 and a year went by, no magic crop circle. First of all, I got to say, when I asked them to encode the name Ia Inky into a crop circle, my next thought was what a silly request. Can you imagine like a big crop circle showing up and it just says inky and in cursive? I mean, it looks like a big birthday cake, you know? <laughs> like, well, what's that gonna do? You know? But then I got cocky. I was like, well, figure it out, man. If you are who you say you are, encode it in a cool way, and while you're at it, encode it with something only I would be able to decode. And I just left it at that. Well, in the two years that it took, because what what happened and I didn't foresee this is crop circles began to be used by them as almost like a chalkboard in our classroom that was guiding me into understanding cosmic harmonious frequencies. And um, in that two years, though, from 2009 until 2011, when that first crop circle showed up, by the way, I should have said um, in the notes of, you know, for Other Side of Midnight, I have a very detailed long list of the crop circles that were used in the communication and everything that was uh, revealed and in depth. And we won't get into all that because it's just too much, but uh, it's cool to have it in a new place because, you know, I lost my website recently. I had to really fight to get it back and prove I am Michael Lee Hill, which was ridiculous. And um, But it's nice to have it safeguarded. But anyhow, during that two years before that crop circle showed up, I started learning this uh, art form of creating what was called polyadian healing discs, which was these quartz crystal glass creations that are uh, have a copper wrap and The idea was to use sacred geometry within the quartz crystal and meaning you know use seed of life flower of life. Um,
0: golden mean. Yeah, know, and if, if people want to see what these look like, if they go to your part of the uh, uh, website where it says bios, Michael Lee Hill, there's mm-hmm. a there's a very interesting picture of you holding one up. There are two mm-hmm. links there. Take people to your website. You've got all kinds of amazing images of, of these. This is an actual mechanical, physical object, you know, a, 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 a construct which somehow entrains through the geometry, the frequencies of the torsion field and transmits it to other material objects, most often water or fluids, which contain water. And again, Beverly Rubik, uh, at my request, did uh, very detailed experiments and found, however it's working, it's working. And you put water on one of these things, let it sit there for 15, 20 minutes, an hour, And you drink it, and interesting, positive things happen.
4: Yeah. You know what she told me is, first of all, I asked, well, wait a minute. If there's no energy within the droplet of water, because they have the technology to look at the photonic light energy uh, within a droplet of water. And the fact of the matter is, we've killed our water, municipal tap water, by fluoride, you know, chlorine, making it go down. Uh, you know, miles of pipe and then taking a right-hand turn. Uh, I said, well, wait a minute, if there's no energy, but now it looks like a, a supernova went off in the middle of this droplet of water. Where is that extra energy coming from? So I specifically asked her, is it coming from our sun? Is it coming from our planets, the tectonic plates, the electromagnetic fields around the planets? And she said, no it's coming from another dimension <laughs> and that really toasted my noodle. I never Hyperdimensional had to ask myself, physics. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, well, never had to ask myself what's it mean to be drinking water that has energy from another dimension in it. But, uh, so, uh, what had happened was, you know, I, I learned how to make this art form, by the way, the, the individual I learned it from has now passed away. And I'm one of the only ones that know how to make these things. And, um, I was doing them with sacred geometry like I was taught. And, but the Anunnaki had guided me into cymatics, which is a new science of making frequency visible for the first time ever, you know, uh, something from nothing, you know, which is what happened. But anyhow.
0: I well, but cymatics me- is nothing more mysterious than creating standing wave patterns with these frequencies, these special frequencies as they interact uh, like, like musical, you know, chords and notes interact in, in any piece you, you know, create. And then you freeze literally in a, in a matrix, in this quartz disc, uh, this pattern, and then the pattern shapes the field around anything you put on the disc, including water, which then absorbs the pattern. You drink it, the water in your body absorbs the pattern and thereby you balance your own frequencies relative to the field
4: yeah i'll tell you what happened is because you know i learned this art form of making these pleiadian energy discs but simultaneously i was learning about cymatics and i had tracked down every note of the musical scale tuned properly with the appropriate cymatic image and um, like I said, in 2011, for real, that crop circle I asked them for appeared. And it appeared in Perono, Italy. And uh, it it actually encoded the names IA Inky around a seven-pointed star, and it did it in ASCII binary code. Mm.
8: It's not
4: debatable. You know, it's it's binary code. You decode it, and it's IA space Inky. So this crop circle became very important to me because – they, you know, I rung their phone and they answered back. <laughs> and, um, well,
0: hang on a sec, because there's been a lot of controversy ever since they were first noticed in the modern era, back in the uh, in the 80s, I believe. Uh, yeah. Crop circles, simple ones, simple circles with dots and then more complex geometries, and then these incredible tableaus of incredibly sophisticated geometry extending over like 1,500 feet, And then you have Doug and Dave and, you know, the controversy was, well, who's doing this? Are they all just fakes? Is it some super advertising campaign uh, by somebody that's being very mysterious and arcane? Is it the deep state? Is it military satellites playing games between us, the Russians, the Chinese, the deep state that knows this physics? In other words, who was behind crop circles? And one of the leading contenders in my mind always was, someone friends of the human race who basically in a very uh star trekian you know uh, prime directive sort of way without revealing themselves are trying to nudge into the conversation the underlying physics of reality itself in a very McLuhan kind of way the medium is the message the crop circles being geometry in the crops In the life-giving essence, the torsion field, biological consciousness interaction in a living form on Earth, crops was basically McLuhan saying in the crop circles, the medium, the crops, are the message. This is why drinking this energized water works, because we are nothing but manifestations of the torsion field in 3D.
4: Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, You know, I had made a disc out of that inky crop circle just because it was so important to me. But uh, before, um, uh, right when I got that disc done, I created the seven musical note set of every note of the musical scale but tuned properly. And the last disc I made was the A note tuned to 27 hertz. Um, Because 27 is an octave of 432. It's four octaves below. And um, by the way, as you're saying, people think maybe Doug and Dave went out there and made it. It's it's really, uh, once you look into the subject, you know, it's really easy to tell man-made ones from from real ones. Real ones, the crop is still growing. Uh, It's not damaged. And if you get out there with boards on your feet, it kills the crop. And not only that, there's a lot of scientific um well there there, that... there
0: there was a biophysicist named Levengood yeah. who actually took crop samples from real circles, looked at them in the lab, and found there were energy changes in the crop that no amount of stomping around on a on a board could ever not create do it.
4: <laughs> Yes, indeed. Levin Good actually went to, there was a crop circle that showed up right near Serpent Mound in Ohio, not the UK. And that was one of the crop circles he took um, the uh, crop from and studied. And that's going to be, become important in the future. But anyhow, what had happened was when I made the A note at 27 hertz, perfect seven-pointed star, I'm sitting there looking at it going, why does this look so familiar to me? And two and two was not clicking that. I just created the E uh, inky crop circle disc, and it was based on a seven-pointed star.
0: And wait, you, that- you mean that the seven-pointed star appears when you, when you play 27 hertz tones? Yeah, through okay. a, a well, you know, why, you know why that's important. The Actually, in, you brought it up. The entire of foundation of hyperdimensional physics is a classic geometric theorem created by a mathematician centuries ago, about a century ago, named Schlafly, uh and it's called the twenty-seven lines on the general cubic surface. And later in the show, you're going to see why the cubic surface is crucial. To understanding everything we're talking about
4: mm, mind-blowing
0: yeah even scientifically pump 27 hertz through a cymatic device and it
4: produces a perfect seven-pointed star held in place by nothing but frequency this isn't photoshop this isn't computer generated it's, it's a real
0: it's resonant standing waves
4: yes and uh so I couldn't figure out, though, why did this look so familiar? And after 10 minutes, it wasn't coming to me. So this voice is just like, let it go.
0: You know, you'll figure it okay. out. Hang on. We're mm-hmm. at the uh, top of the hour, ah. the magic top of the hour. My guest this morning, my first guest, who's giving us some crucial background into how we picked the frequencies we picked, how David and Thomas have created the messages that Maria is going to transmit from Stonehenge how all of this interlocking ancient human hidden history hangs together and is going to be communicated to someone out there, maybe the folks that Michael met. All of that is coming up in the next uh, two hours of The Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland.
6: We shall return.
0: And welcome back everyone on this Saturday night, January 29th, 2022, January 29th. The month is almost over. And in less than a week, we're going to embark on phase two of an extraordinary ET communications experiment named fondly after my favorite television show, Dean, open hailing frequencies. And this is for real. And the background to all this is coming from our friend and colleague and first guest tonight, Michael Hill. Michael, please pick up where you left off. Right on. Uh,
4: you know, as I was saying, I made a, a seven-musical note scale uh, disc set. And prior to that, the same exact day, I had made this Ea inky uh, crop circle into a disc. And I couldn't figure out why the seven-pointed star that was staring me in the face from the A27 hertz frequency, looked so familiar. So after about 10 minutes of just, it was not coming. I just put the disc down, and I looked to my right, and I seen the EF crop circle, and I seen the seven-pointed <laughs> star. And I was like, I started crying, actually. It was like revelation. I'm like, oh, my God, they did encode it. With
0: they wanted like you was. to come to it yourself.
4: Yeah, they're good at that. They don't tell you the answers. They'll point their finger in the direction,
0: but they're Which, very good. Which, by the way, is how you know the good guys from the bad guys.
4: That makes a lot of sense. Um, that's what started this
0: and the conversation with them
4: using crop circles, because then instantly I found in the exact same field in Italy the prior year, there was another crop circle, and uh, it encoded, and you can tell it's the same author if you want to look at it that way or artist and it encoded e equals mc squared in ascii binary code so instantly i already knew that they use crop circles multi-dimensionally to communicate um, with the arecibo uh you know message from carl sagan and the response the year prior they had like an hd version of their process of how they transmit so i instantly i thought well what is 432 have to do with e equals mc squared
8: Mm. and
4: uh, they instantly you know brought that out to me you know if everything's particle and wave right quantum physicists tell us well e equals mc squared is only the particle part of the equation it's right there m equals mass where's the frequency component well 432 times 432 is c within one percent accuracy Meaning 432 squared becomes C squared times mass equals energy. And in this instance, I think, you know, 432 frequencies are the only frequencies that are truly harmonics of light. And um, so that really started this communication. And there's five more uh, crop circles, and those are in the link. Uh, and I won't get into all of them because, man, I gotta, I'm got. i going to try to wrap this up because I know there's so many great guests waiting to come on. But uh, so what happened in this time as well as I started to really be guided by them is how 432 is encoded in all of our cultures, uh, civilizations, blueprints, even back in Sumer, you know, our way of keeping time. Uh, you know, they gave us this idea of multiplying and, and Dividing whole units by 12, uh, you know, 12 inches and a foot, 12 hours, 12 apostles, 12. The list just goes on. And um, so look at how many seconds is in 12 hours. It's 43,200, 432. Mm -hmm. And I learned from Graham Hancock, he said, take that 43,200 and multiply it by the height and width of the Great Pyramid in Giza. And you get the true dimensions of planet Earth. You get into the mound builder because we're tracking this civilization that was here on this planet, and they've encoded this 432 base math and physics through all of their creations, kind of like as a living library,
0: waiting for us to get to the point we would understand it. Yeah, I wish I could track down Carl Monk because he has this all in a self-published book, decades ago, and he's such an iconic He doesn't have email, he doesn't have a website, he doesn't have a publisher. He's got a phone and I can't find his damn phone number. He lives in Oh no. He lives in Montana, which is kind of like the back side of the dark side of the moon and, you know, the the movie. So getting hold of him again, I haven't talked to him in years. I'm not even sure he's still with us in, you know, 3D, but if I can find him, if someone knows how to get hold of Carl Monk, he will lay out the connections between all these ancient sacred sites all over the planet that formed this extraordinary, you know, network. I think it was, uh, Sam and Goran from Bosnia the other day, Goran was saying that the pyramids and the sacred sites are kind of like an intergalactic network. Well, we got to find Carl Monk. So Carl, it'd be
4: fantastic.
0: We, we've got to get him on, you know, on the air because he wrote the book. Literally. He connected Stonehenge to New Kirk, to the, Chichen to the Asian sacred sites. I mean, he literally was the first to see the numbers that connect this ancient sacred communications consciousness, uplifting grid that's planet wide that we're hoping when Maria does her number, you know, six days from, from tonight is going to ring somebody's chimes all over the world and turn on something which changes potentially everything.
4: Right on. It's exciting. Uh by the way, my radio did come in.
0: Oh, fantastic. Yes, I'm ready. Okay, well um... Thomas is working on the uh, briefing sheet. So that will be communicated to everybody in the network in the next uh Thomas, I don't want to overpromise. Would you say 24 hours?
2: Uh, in terms of just putting together the the protocols for the to how
0: to yes the manual
2: uh, yeah no I mean we'll be able to like very so early next week we need to get that to to everyone excellent and then okay. yeah so cool and and additionally I just I just wanted to sort of let you know because I know that I didn't submit any notes to Keith um, but what I have prepared tonight is actually kind of a interesting segue from what was just discussed um, in terms of some. Sort of explanations as to like where the 432 hertz sort of stems from and how that relates to hyperdimensional geometry and things like that Excellent. and um yeah Can't wait. so anyways just to let just to put that out there
4: you know it's hitting me it's almost like a sign of those of us that are truly in contact with the real thing it's like the message is the same it's redundant it's scientific and uh, it, it's pointing over and over again to 432, to 27, to 144,
3: um, over and over
4: again, you know. If
2: um,
0: you build it, they will well,
2: the, show up. Yeah, the, the, interesting, the interesting thing, I mean, it, I, it was so, so nice to hear you talking about Cymatics um, just as a sort of sidebar. I mean, I've been interested in Cymatics for a really long time. Um, actually, the logo for my, my record label is, <laughs> is a Cymatic. A ah, cymatics. right on um yeah so well see um, thomas is a glaring example
0: of when you build it the right folks will show up because michael michael thomas showed up out of nowhere with all the perfect correct skills to help us make this work (laughs) <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs>
8: um,
4: what I can say is just past civilizations and how this bloodline intertwined into the Native American First Nations. Look at the mound builder sites and they're encoding and incorporating octaves of 432, which is very simple. You just, you know, multiply or divide by two to get to the accurate hearth of Uh, the 432 octaves, which are 864, 432. The lower octave is 216. The lower octave of that is 108, and then 54, and then 27. And um, so what you'll find is some of, like, go to Newark Earthworks, and look, one mound will be 1,080 feet long. Another mound will be 2,160 feet long. It's like, oh, my God, they're encoding (laughs) octaves of 432. And Carl has
9: got all this in
0: this book. Including the significators that tell you what you multiply the dimensions by, like some pyramids have five, five you know geometric angles and others have three, and he, it's all there in Carl's book. You know, you can Google Carl Monk, um, and, and if we can find his damn phone number, I've got to get him on the show because it's, it's his time. He did the homework. He deserves to be here when we bring it home.
4: Understood. Yeah. You, t- you turned me on to his work and I found a presentation by him and it is on YouTube and it blew my mind. I was like, yes, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, all in all, those five crop circles led me, um, to, you yeah. know, cymatics really when I've made that, first of all, the scientists from Cy- cymoscope, the leaders in cymatics, they were blown away. They said they've used this technology to em- image every frequency known to mankind even dolphin noises, you know, children's baby noises, but they never seen the kind of complexity or dimensionality that came from the audio signal I sent them, which was from an electric rock guitar amp. <laughs> of all things, they said, you know, it must be the amp because amps are the only things that still use vacuum tube technology to get that crunch, to get that Van Halen, you know, Jimi Hendrix,
0: crunch and that was their Well estimate. it's an analogue as opposed to digital and the digital exactly. clip Yeah well, they exactly. said
4: uh, they didn't see this kind of
2: complexity Wait when they
0: imaged was digital that, was, was that you Thomas?
2: Oh no I'm just agreeing that like basically I mean, you know, the advantage of any type of an analog um signal source um, especially when you're distorting or you're looking to saturate things. Yeah. Um, you just can't get that with either a digital source or a digital processing. You know, those tube amps um, you know, are, are, um, uh, allows you to saturate and color uh, the sound signals without it obviously sort of clipping out.
0: See, this is um, one of the reasons why I think that uh, Musk and the other guys are probably wrong when they say we're in a simulation because the, the, the world, the universe, the physics is not digital. It's analog. But
2: but this is, and this kind of, again, sort of kind of leads into, to, you know, um, so, so what we're going to kind of talk about, you know, after, after this and sort of really looking at the geometry of this hyperdimensional structure um, it's the, the, it all comes down to resolution. So I mean, we can say we can interpret and say, oh well, you know what? There's you know this or that that may lead us to kind of think that we're not living in a simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really the fabric of reality and the and the, uh, the hyperdimensional structure is basically exactly what an extremely complex simulation would look like. So you know, I, I actually am of the belief that I mean, the statistical likelihood of us being in the original sort of iteration is like one in billions and billions and billions and billions and billions. So, I mean, it doesn't,
8: Hmm. you know,
2: this is, this, this kind of put it this way. I mean, it's, it's going into what we're trying to encode. It's going into as a, as a rationale and a justification to why we're choosing these signals and I do believe that it's going to it's going to lead us to some sort of an indication or explanation as to why we could be receiving signals um, uh, faster than the speed of light. And and again, I mean it, it's it's you know this the 432 hertz, the octaves, and and the way that we're sort of um, you know calculating the different frequencies that we're sending out, and, and this and that. Um, I mean, is really based off the the, the hyperdimensional geometric structure of, of reality. And, and, you know, we're using this substantially right now in terms of what we're trying to do, which is, I think, kind of interesting to, to this sort of experiment and this overall effort.
0: Cool. Okay, Michael, I want to bring on David to talk about the shocking new discovery, which is right so integrated. So, you know, if you have a few closing things you want to say, and then we'll get back to your experiment there in Florida uh, later in the show.
4: Ah, Right on. No, that's about it. You know, it's just, uh, to me, you know, it really cracked open when you arranged for, you know, NASA's biophysicist, Beverly Rubick to look into it. And then for the first time ever, They actually have scientific proof that it's bringing through energy. And they were really freaked out, by the way, because this disk, it doesn't have wires going through it. It doesn't have a battery. Yet somehow it's opening up, you know, a a hole through the fabric of our space-time and bringing energy through. And, um, you know, that's that's pretty amazing. And um, it was because of you. So thank you. And it makes sense to me why these – you know, the communication is coming in through these because, you know, Richard, why don't you talk about real quick, like the moon and the sun and how our you know, our reality?
0: Well, in terms of the solar system, and we don't want to get sidetracked, but I'll just say when I started looking at the frequencies, the numbers, the geometry, the physics, <clears throat> it didn't take, you know, uh, me falling off the turn of truck to realize the whole damn solar system is patterned in terms of orbits, dimensions, relative spacing, sizes, it's all patterned on these exact same frequencies expressed in dimensions and particularly like miles. So when people say the ancient English system is arbitrary and you know the the yard is from, you know, King Henry's elbow to his tip of his finger and stuff like that. No, it's much more fundamental. And that's basically been the disinformation for the past several hundred years to prevent us from looking at the fundamentals of measurement as a key to what kind of reality we really incorporate, including up to the dimensions and design by someone, I think it was a redesign, of the solar system itself. Which is the perfect segue, David, to your foray this week, which has garnered incredible results.
8: Really?
1: Which which one are you talking about?
0: Um, your conversation with Natasha.
1: Okay, yeah, we're going to Natasha Hurley Walker is her name. So, this news hit every news channel. You know, it it actually hit CNN, NBC News. It was published in Nature, Um, and this appears when you see it on the news, like you saw it in CNN this past week, about this signal that is unlike any other radio signal that these radio astronomers have encountered before. And so I decided to go to Nature, buy a copy of the paper. And by the way, if,
0: see... if you want to see one of these news stories, it's number seven in my items. Okay,
1: number seven and Richard's items. And the first thing we notice is that the data of the extremely bright radio um, signal that was between – 72 and 231 megahertz really interested me because the radios we're using that Jimmy appointed us to use these Baofangs are actually operating in that range and when I saw the number 72 of course I knew that was an octave of 144 because 72 times 2 like Michael Hill said is 144 and of course we're, we're we've been receiving at 144.1 megahertz so th- technically this is this radio um, astronomy array in Australia is actually low-frequency radio. This isn't high-frequency because we're not in gigahertz and we're definitely not in tetrahertz. So so it's amazing that, first of all, they're even perusing and they're getting a signal in that range. But what interested them even more, because I, I wrote Natasha and she wrote me back.
0: Now, she is that, the principal investigator uh on the array for this experiment right this survey right
1: and she's an award-winning radio astronomer she's she's quite young she looks quite young you know she's not somebody who's as seasoned as you would imagine so she's she's got a new very fresh mind i was actually shocked that she wrote me back because (laughs) she's saying that the 18.18 minute interval which is actually ten ninety one point sixteen ninety seconds. It it actually the square root of that number is almost exactly thirty three. And of course that number.
0: Well, didn't you say it was thirty three oh three?
1: It's thirty three oh three. So you drop 0. out the zero.
0: It's three three three. The three 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 is one of the other foundations of the physics because it resolves to nineteen point five.
1: Right. And then, of course, you know that a muamua was coming in at
0: 33 degrees. You know, yep, again. yep, yep. Ding, 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 ding. So
1: when what I started to do immediately is say, you know, also um, this 1091.1690 seconds um, basically is, is in a perfect ratio of 1 to 79 in a sidereal day. In a sidereal day, is a cosmic day which is slightly shorter than 24 hours
0: 23 hours 56 minutes and change yeah
1: and you're and i did it right down to the change and and i thought okay when something resolves that perfectly and you understand that the 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour idea you know it, it the way we keep time is is exclusive to earth if you were on mars you, you wouldn't have a 60 60 60 you wouldn't have
0: that well, well wait it's arbitrary it could have been anything the reason it's it's fundamental it's back to the physics it's well, no it, it, it's it no accident. The 360 it, degrees is a whole circle and 60 minutes and then 60 seconds And then 24 hours and 60 minutes and 60 seconds of time, it's all part of the same physics. The Earth is part of the physics. It's not arbitrary.
1: Oh, it's not arbitrary, but it's exclusive to
0: Earth. No, it's not. You don't know. You can can do the same thing with a full rotation from Mars. In fact, there have been several efforts over the decades to create a Mars clock that would be kind of like the Earth's. Because the the Mars day is a shade shorter than the Earth day. It's 23 hours and 39 minutes. Well, the 39 minutes is twice 19.5.
1: But its year is not the same source.
0: No, except if the year changed. See, these things are not immutable over time. The solar system we see tonight as a snapshot has been evolving ever since a huge event. So what we see now is not what was pristinely originally designed. It has slipped. It has moved. It's tried to reach a new equilibrium. It's still moving toward a new equilibrium after a huge catastrophic event in relatively recent solar system history, something like 65 million years ago. Right.
1: So. If I take this number, the ten ninety one sixteen ninety, and I take three hundred sixty five point two four days per year, times twenty four hours in a day, times sixty, divided by my number, which is five thousand two hundred fifty. No, it's it, sorry, it's five hundred twenty five thousand nine hundred forty five point six, and I divide that by exactly ten ninety one. 1690 and those are your seconds in your interval which is 18.18 minutes it resolves to exactly 482.001 now again the fact that that would resolve to a to a to an earth time base so perfectly is is inc- like billions a did again. you
0: say 482
1: 482 okay 0.00. So in the 100% column, we're exactly at 482. Now, again, when when I'm trying to figure out what does this number mean, was it meant for Earth, or was it just sent out all over the the galaxy? And it's not meant for Earth, right? And when when you the moment you observe something, in a way you could say because you observed it and you noticed it, it's meant for you. But it, it, is this got our design on it? This number, right? And the funny thing about ten ninety one it happens to be the the um, di- you know film distribution company of James Fox's new <laughs> UFO movie. But it's also that 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 company is carrying all these UFO titles. And I'm thinking, I mean, I'm I'm pulling straws, right? I'm looking for if this number is meant for Earth, what does it mean, right? So, again, I went to the cube root, and the cube root of ten ninety one sixty ninety is exactly 10.3, which happens to be the height in feet of a six cubit staff in in the of the angel in the book of Ezekiel. He's holding a six cubit staff times 20.601 inches is 10.295 feet. So, so again, are are those co- coincidences or are they coincidences? So I wrote Natasha back. She she you know she told me you know, that the the value of the ten ninety one sixteen ninety, which is, I'll give it to you exactly, ten ninety one point sixteen ninety um divided by sixty seconds in a minute is eighteen point eighteen six one five minutes. So that was peculiar to them because it, it all as she said, if you moved one thousandths if you move the seconds over by one thousandth, this was in her letter to me, then the signal disappeared. It it it, it had to be exact, the of an inch, the thousand, sorry, the thousandth of a, of the minute column. So that means, again, that was peculiar to her. She said, we've never seen anything like this that is so perfectly timed. I mean, right to the thousandth. And then, of course...
0: Not even geez. in the thousands of pulsars.
1: No, they've never seen anything like it. Because there, no, there
0: is normally in pulsar observation, when you look at pulsar graphs, plots, there, right. there is jitter. There, right. The average is the period, but the actual frequencies you know, shift around wildly within an envelope. This did not do that.
2: It's, no. it's, well no, it's like, I, if I can inter yeah, yeah, if I go, go. can interject here, I mean yeah i mean what the what they're sort of saying is unusual about it is that you know with these kinds of uh radio signal patterns. It's not matching what they would normally see from, like, a neutron star or white dwarf or other type of, like, existing astronomical phenomena. So, I mean, where they're kind of thinking – their interest is kind of lying is that this could be some new type of a phenomena that they haven't sort of seen yet. But that's what – Well, a totally
0: new natural phenomena.
2: Yeah, I I –
1: Hey, but the thing, then when we go, Richard, when you notice further in the paper... Hang, hang on,
0: hang on, hang on, hang on. We're coming to the bottom of the hour. Let's not let mm-hmm. it lie there on barren ground. We need enough runway, because this is a pretty amazing confirmation of what David was suspecting all along.
1: You're not going to believe this when you see okay. this next thing.
0: You are on, and I'll need to hit the right button here to do something. Let's do this, okay? You're on the other side of midnight. We're basically talking about a cosmic radio source, 1.3 parsecs away, parsec is 3.26 light years, so you do the multiplication, it's about 4,000 light years, meaning that if the signal has been in transit as a radio wave through the galaxy, it's left there 4,000 years ago, and it only appeared in our skies for three months, and then disappeared. So are we saying that it is a natural source that kind of erupted 4,000 years ago for just three months, and we're now seeing the, the wave reach Earth? Or is it a little bit more directed? Stay tuned. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
10: The Other Side of Midnight.com.
0: And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January twenty ninth, twenty twenty two. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, just go to the website and you can see them all. They have first names, Michael and David and Thomas and Maria, Ron and John, and Keith is with us, and uh, I'm here. So let's get back to David. So, David, uh, pick up the story, because, I mean, this is just unbe-exing-exing-believable.
1: I'm going to freak you out even more. Okay, (laughs) so this is so freaky. I can't even believe this. So now, if I take my 1091, 1690 number that Natasha gave me.
0: Which is the number of seconds between these one-minute, 60-second bursts.
1: Which converts to the 1818. Exactly. Now, I'm going to divide it by the cube root of 432. And guess what I get? 144.34. One hundred and forty-four point three four. Holy cow! Now, what what caused me to do that is is so crazy. It's like I'm being guided by some spiritual force. Now, remember, I took the cube root of four thirty-two. I took my ten ninety-one. So ten ninety-one. I'm just doing my calculator right now. 1690 seconds and i'm going to take the cube root of 432 and when a a cube root a square root is the root of the square so but, but the cube root is the root of the cube because as you note your tonga explosion in your items you know 12 and 13 is a cube so i'm going to take that number natasha's number divided by the cube root of 432, which is 7.5595, and I get 144. So now, what's amazing about that? Of course, 144.1 megahertz is the frequency that Jimmy tuned this into, and Jimmy. Yeah, but was, that's
0: based on an arbitrary the speed of light, and if the speed of light changes, I know, I know. you wind up at 144.
1: Right, so the uh, one forty-four is an octave of the seventy-two. So we went on, but now when we click on Natasha's graphic from the study, and and I asked Natasha this question, and and actually you answered it before she did, Richard, because you <laughs> went further down into the paper.
0: I thought. Well, that was see, I I, I, I happen to know how Nature papers, which is a paywall website, you know, all these mm-hmm. mainstream institutions now are ripping people off scientific community by charging for data that should be made freely available. I mean, come on folks. So David,
1: David, you're on your number four. Well, anyway, so,
0: so I, I, I went to the paper that you sent me the copy of through the Mm -hmm. paywall. You bought the paper, sent it to me. I knew that at the bottom of the paper, there should be links to the diagrams and, and graphs that are used in, in the paper that they don't want to, Take up space in the paper to to kind of reprint. So I went to those and I found the dynamic spectra from 72 megahertz to 231 megahertz of the broadcast of this anomalous radio source, you know, 4,000 light years away. And right there, which is my item number, let me let me get it to you properly. Fourteen,
1: I think. It's,
0: it's yeah. item number fourteen. Is 14. the radio spectra from 72 megahertz all the way to 231 uh, in a vertical and time is left and right and there is an unadjusted version of the data and then the right hand uh, side of the of the display is when you correct for the galactic dispersion caused by electrons interfering with the radio waves between us and the source and that's how they derive around 4,000 light years for the distance, knowing how many electrons, uh, free electrons per cubic centimeter between Earth and whatever's broadcasting for one minute every 18.18 seconds, this anomaly. And when you look at the graph, it's obvious that there are a series of horizontal bright lines from left to right or right to left dependent on frequency they appear to be very narrow band emissions superimposed on a broad spectrum continuum like the continuum is noise but these narrow band emissions are basically they have to be artificial signals because as as natasha says in her email to you artificial signals are narrow band Natural sources are broadband, and she and her team apparently never noticed because they never looked because they never expected to see narrow band emission in the dynamic spectra over three months from this bizarre, one-of-a-kind so far, source. Then I looked down on the graph, and right under 140, kind of eyeballing it around 144, there's a bright yellow line meaning it's much louder because the the the, the intensity is color coded in this graph and it goes both through the original data and through the dispersion corrected data and it looks for everything like a 144 kilo I'm sorry megahertz narrow frequency modulated because it's not a, an even line, it's speckles, it's, it's got changes exactly on the same wavelength as we've been getting answers to our Oumuamua transmissions for the last two months. And you see
1: that? And and you're, you're right, when you look at all those little speckles, that looks like what you said on the phone to me, modulation, which means data, that there's information in there. And it, this happens to be the same frequency that we're receiving All the numbers that I've been giving out on the show in the last several sessions, longitudes and latitudes, royal cubits, speed of light, great pyramid of Egypt, exact locations. 56
0: holes at Stonehenge.
1: Right. It's all coming in at
0: 144.1
1: on the radio. And what's amazing about those speckles is that when you look at some of their other lines, there seems to be another line somewhere around seventy something that has similar speckles, mm-hmm. but that must be modulation, and that means there's data there. and believe me, they know they're not going to tell the world this.
0: well, this thing. is how we this is how we test, because what you're going to do with our new friend Natasha, who happens to be in Australia, working with the Murchison Array, which is this huge array of separate radio antenna. Over several square miles of Australian desert, you're going to ask her for a file containing the original or computer processed signals in digital form, so we can put it through our own analyzers. Have Thomas work with it, and if she will not give that data to you, I have a workaround. I have another source. I can go in the back door, and I can probably get the transmissions because if we put the transmissions from this 4000 light year distant object through the same processing we've done our responses to oumuamua my bet is we're going to hear and see exactly the same kind of signal which brings up a crucial point they've looked now at the historical data going back years the Merchants Array has been in operation. Right, they,
1: she said she went way back, and yeah. they
0: found nothing. nothing, 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 nothing. It suddenly appears in January, which raises the question in my mind: When did Jimmy first start sending the magic correct frequencies into deep space from his radio facility in northern Arizona?
1: See, but it was it was in late 2017, and also in 2018 was the beginning. Now, see, because what we do know here is that, for example, I received the the square of the royal cubit, twenty point six zero one squared, perfectly, on two bands, one four three two one, which is one, 40, 1 four thirty two megahertz and also 144.1 so notice when you look on the graph on richard's item 14 when you go to the 140 mark and again of course this graphic was made by an artist it's 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 probably not a
0: hundred it's got some slop it's got a little bit it, of air yeah,
1: it's got a little bit of air you'll notice that those little those little speckles they have a bandwidth which means remember i got the roll cubit at 14321 and 144.1, which means there's there's a little bit of latitude in there.
0: there there's that's there's why we a lot need the
1: latitude.
0: we don't have a lot of time, David. That's why we need the original data. If she won't provide it, she should, since you guys have a really good working relationship. I read the email; she seems open, engaging. But she said categorically, given that there are no narrowband signals, this has to be natural. Well, how could they not see the narrowband signals all through their own damn data?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're perfect lines going right across. And cognitive dissonance.
0: In other words, they can't see what they can't imagine.
1: They can't see what they can't imagine because they don't want
0: to believe that well, data. Well, I don't there. think it's they don't want it's, – it's like it's not even in their universe. They're so inculcated with the idea there's nobody out there. If there were, we would have found them or they would have found us. UFOs are nonsense. People describing contact, you know, are are nonsense. It's all nonsense. It's only science that works and nothing has ever been seen. Therefore, a new thing has to be. Remember, when Jocelyn Bell first found the first pulsar working working for um, Anthony Hewish, she wanted to call it an LGM little green men and they overruled her and then they found another one and another one and they said, okay, these things are natural. Now my friend, Dr. Paul Le violet has a model, which basically says that pulsars are super, you know, um, uh, high level civilization, interstellar and intergalactic beacons, specifically designed to radiate So that you can navigate with a starship between star systems, both in this galaxy and in the other galaxy. And, of course, it's totally fallen on deaf ears. He actually wrote a brilliant book about this. But that's a minority, minority, minority opinion that I'm sure Natasha doesn't even know about. So, yes, Thomas, I will agree that there's a bit of blindness here. The key is going to be when we present her with her own data and how it matches ours, what happens next
1: well remember what i just figured out i took her f- number to digital accuracy of seconds 1091.1690 divided by the cube root of 432 so just think about what the and and i produced
0: 144
1: you know and and point you know a bunch in of in other numbers. words
0: converging lines of evidence are all pointing to the same answer it's artificial, and it could be the same folks we're talking to, and I just think that it's moved from a source in the sky to now where these little handheld radios, you can pick it up in your dining room.
1: So for people who don't know what a cube root is, imagine a cube, and you want to know how many cubic millimeters or inches are in the cube. So you know, your cube root is the number times itself times itself tells you how many.
0: And the reason you- cubes are important is because the 27 lines on the general cubic surface are the foundation of the physics, the hyperdimensional model. And a cube, as you're going to see shortly, is comprised of two interlocking tetrahedrons. Okay, Thomas, I want to go to you because you've got a reaction to this. And then you've got some stuff you want to show us.
2: Oh God, yeah, I've been taking notes, basically the good, the, the, good. Whole con- the, the whole conversation so far. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, as we we discussed uh, this week um, in our phone call, I mean, what I thought would be important for the listeners would be to kind of like take things back a little bit and and. And try to explain and bring some people up to speed, I guess, in as kind of layman terms as possible as to why are these sacred frequencies so this you know this kind of goes a little bit to the story of how I got interested in sacred uh, sacred frequencies um, so years ago, um, this kind of just was something that fell in my lap and and I actually. Didn't really understand what these symbols and what the symbolism represented, but I was just drawn to them to the point that well before this was fashionable, um, I began tattooing myself with all sorts of sacred geometry. This was years and years and years ago. So I've got the Flower of Life. I've got a bunch <laughs> of tattoos all over You look like and...
0: Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Not quite so sexy, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway. So, so it was funny because after I after I'd uh, gotten tattooed and oh, talk about the of medium skin... of the message. <laughs> yeah, I know, these became permanently etched. Um, there is a that's laser treatment, actually, you know, right? That's when I. That's when I. Sorry.
0: There is a laser treatment, you know, right?
2: Oh, I love them. I I, I love them. Oh, I mean, okay. They're, these are a part of my history. Do it's, it's, you remember
0: uh, Bradbury's uh, book, The Illustrated Man?
2: Well, one day you'll see. I've got the one of the one of the tattoos I have are the particle paths from CERN. Hmm. Uh, another one is the, the. I mean, the whole thing tells a story, and and the thing is, is that these they document very pivotal points uh, in my life.
5: Wow. And,
2: so anybody that's, that's sort of into tattoos, I mean, it's become a very fashionable thing. When I started doing it, I don't think it was as, as kind of accepted. But anyways, besides the point. So, so it was kind of from there that I sort of had said, you know what, I, I put all these symbols on my body because these are some symbols that I've you know, seen at ancient sites and I was just gravitating towards them.
0: Hang on. Hang I, on. I have uh, to interrupt. Maria, who's standing in the wings, just sent mm-hmm. us a message. I have a Stonehenge tattoo.
3: There
0: you go. Yes. That is too cool. Can, yes, I, can Do we have a close-up photograph?
3: I, I will. The, the amount of people on tours that have had a selfie next to my arm with the original picture of Stonehenge drawn by Indigo Jones in 1666, that's the tat.
0: <laughs> wow. There
2: you
3: go.
0: I will see that's your incredible. tattoo and raise you one Rolling right circle.
2: (laughs) So anyway, so look at I I, what it really boils down to is that I figured that if I had etched this permanently into my skin I'd better be able to explain and understand what these what these symbols represented. And then, you know, that sort of discovery and that path that I followed, um, which was kind of happening you know in parallel to me getting deeper and deeper into my meditation work and into some more sort of you know metaphysical type of of, of uh, research and and instruction and practice and things like that, and it sort of all came together so back to the point. so for the listeners at home, why are we focusing on these these signals? you know what what is this? well, there's one symbol that has been that has been etched in ancient sites all over the world, and that 's the flower of life The flower of life for people that don't know is sort of it looks like a bunch of interlocking interlocking circles
7: um, so I think ancient- I
2: think if i 'm not mistaken, Maria,
0: we have it in your section don't we let me let me go look let me go look um, uh, it's a- number. Hang on, my computer is acting up. Of course, they always do. It's number, is it seven? No, that's... that's uh, the, I'm,
1: not, I'm not sure. That
0: is, that, that's the calendar. Never mind. Sorry, yeah. Thomas,
2: go ahead. Yeah, no problem. So so basically, the flower of life um, and its components, the flower of life is something that's, that's sort of a result of a combination. Um, this is really important in ancient alchemy. Um, so it comprises basically a combination, um, you know, of the five platonic solids. Um, they're all found within the flower of life. So the, the five platonic solids are the tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, and the icosahedron. I, I can never pronounce that. Icosahedron. Icosahedron. Now, this shape, okay. Um, the fruit of life or the flower of life encodes four equilateral tri- triangles, which are actually three, six, and nine in terms of energy, and it encodes all frequencies and dimensions uh, of multidimensional polygons. So, the you know when we're talking about the the hyperdimensional structure of reality, this is what we're sort of getting at. So. Um, if you can imagine that we go down to what we perceive as being the, the smallest sort of uh, length, okay? So, I mean, in current science right now, you know, people will refer to the plank, you know, the plank length. So if, if that ends up being sort of the absolute minimum of the fabric, you know, of our, of our reality, what these shapes actually represent are kind of hyperdimensional shapes where you have – your energy points all of your different points of how you would block together shapes to kind of make up the fabric of space and 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 time in a multi-di- multi-dimensional way so uh, let, let me
0: interrupt michael just put the flower of life in the skype window keys it's
2: mm-hmm.
4: actually a new one the one six-petaled is cocoon phase they're telling me and they've showed me a new brand new seven petaled seat of life which he's never seen.
0: Seven tetrahedral spins. So Keith, can we import that into Thomas's section in radio with pictures easily? Go ahead, Thomas.
2: Yeah. So so where this kind of becomes important is that this, you know, these multi-dimensional polygons, okay? Um end up really sort of relating back to things like the golden ratio and
0: well they're actually three-dimensional cymatic patterns standing wave patterns in the force
2: so the flower of life is basically considered the perfect form the perfect proportion that's why they call it the life's flower um this is something that for like thousands of years has been known by philosophers, artists, um, and it is the fundamental sort of, I mean, it is probably the most recognizable um, sacred form. The, the flower of life, you have to kind of imagine, is sort of like a, it's sort of like looking at a two-dimensional image of what is a more than a three-dimensional shape so i mean the way that i kind of explain it to people is that it's kind of like looking at like a shadow of what that multi-dimensional shape would sort of look like so what does that mean (laughs) so basically this geometry okay is what we're trying to play around with in terms of these frequencies so when we're going back down to the 432 hertz, the 432 hertz is is it's mathematically consistent with the patterns of the universe in nature, and it's in the construction of all living forms. It's the essential geometric characteristic op- um, uh, sort of operator of the golden ratio. So this has massive implications and. You know, as a musician, that's that's why it's this is something that I, I I gravitated towards. But you know, this this goes down to the to the absolute, just foundations of the fabric of 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 space time. So by working with octaves and being able to sort of you know transmit at different frequencies that are related to the 430 hertz, this is the reason why we're concentrating on this. And the idea behind what we're trying to do, and in last week's episode, when I broke down what at least uh, sort of the first draft of what it is we're going to be um, sending out in the subsequent uh, transmission, um, was again, you know, sending out through uh, uh, sound frequency hertz ratios that reference extremely important mathematical constants or ratios. Um, again, we're looking for patterns that are going to have some type of a connection to math, and we're going to be sending out patterns that have connections to, to to mathematics. So in in a sort of convoluted way, I mean – you know this this hyperdimensional structure this the the flower of life which relates to the 432 hertz these are infinite fractals and and this is what comprises and and the interesting thing is that within my lifetime and within the last 10 15 years physics is now catching up to the metaphysics and you know we are going to see within the next you know 10 probably not even that long but you're going to start seeing the overlap and then all of a sudden, we're going to be able to have scientific basis to why there are things like um, um, effects at a distance, or 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 being able to explain when how you this
0: say could be main, when you say science, you mean mainstream acknowledgement as opposed to well, the science when, that's already there.
2: Well, the the actual like the physics models, the physics models are catching up. The mainstream so models. In, Well, mainstream. I mean, it's just it's where things are at. So, I mean, we're kind of going from, you know, quantum physics and, you know, the the next leap is going to be the merger. And, you know, all of a sudden there's going to be this unity between a lot of the the philosophies of the uh, ancient teachings that are going to match up. To sort of what we could kind of say current you know or cutting edge uh, science is that, so my belief is that by us by us basically trying to communicate over these frequencies, which is basically kind of like tickling the geometric matrix um, and potentially being able to Tap into some type of a hyperdimensional uh, space, and you know, even though we're utilizing radio signals, the radio signals are having—they the, are perturbations of the the, the ether. So, um, you know, where this really comes into play. Well, wait, is wait, that- wait. Let me ask the, the key question
0: then: mm-hmm. If if we, if we accept everything we said up to this point, that we're tickling the hyperdimensional, you know, matrix, matrix. Mm-hmm. Who is answering? Is it God?
2: The architect? I don't know what you want to call it. I mean, I think that's, 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 that, that, that that's, b- b- brings in a whole... I mean, look, this is why I thought it was interesting that NASA is like, <laughs> looking for all these theologians. and I mean, I don't know what we're... <laughs> and what you we're don't thinking. remember
0: how many theologians they've been talking to? 26. 24! Yeah, yeah. Going back to the reason so, why none of these numbers are arbitrary.
2: So, I mean, the thing is is that right now, and, and bringing this back to the cymatics, I mean, cymatics are basically kind of like a two-dimensional way for us to be able to see these special frequencies and what their behavior is to the hyperdimensional sort of matrix, right? So,
8: mm-hmm.
2: I mean, your cymatics that we would see, whether it be in water uh, or some type of a liquid uh, or whether a cymatic is with sand, I mean, there's different, you know, I, I, there's all sorts of different ways that you can sort of visualize these, um, the the cymatics also exist in three-dimensional space and the fact is is that if they exist in a two-dimensional space and a three-dimensional space then the likelihood is is that they are actually vibrating and having an impact in multi-dimensional
8: mm-hmm. space
2: so this is what we're sort of doing so the interesting thing is that you know and those sorry.
0: patterns those higher dimensional patterns in
2: turn mm-hmm. are reflected
0: in three-dimensional patterns Structures, matter, objects, and vice versa.
2: Well, and it's, I think it extends well beyond three dimensions. So, I mean. Yeah, but time, we happen I
0: mean... to be live here.
2: This is our well exactly, but I mean who this is why I think it's not it's not so uh, so much of a leap to sort of think that the communication that we're attempting could actually be sort of going to a different density and sort of communicating with with something in a different uh, in, in a different. Well, we uh, have data. Space, right? The
0: data is the chirps are <laughs> highly compressed in terms of 3D time.
2: I know, but I think what we're trying to do right now is sort of establish some type of a communication protocol, right? So that's why when we were breaking down what the next signal is going to be from last week, it was important for us to be able to um, essentially kind of outline, given the equipment that we're using at this point, okay, and given the, the let's call it a very rudimentary understanding in terms of the the the, the mathematical geometries, but this was the idea behind sort of saying hey this is where we, we kind of exist this is the sound that we sort of can hear and this is this so I mean you know I'm not expecting for them to be sending us like a la contact uh, you know some type of a diagram to build some type of machine for us to, to tra- travel to another dimension mm-hmm. what I do think is that if we can start seeing patterns and if we can establish some type of a communication it becomes the beginning to okay well well, if we now know that we're, it is, if math in, in these types of ways is going to get, garner some type of a response with some type of a logical structure to it, you know, then we can, as we continue these efforts and these experiments, and we continue to gather gather more people to get involved with this. I mean, I think it's extremely impressive that David's been able to just speak with sort of a modern day, um, you know, astronomer. Um, who's Open to 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 have these kinds of discussions. This is exactly what we want. So I think the you know what we're trying to accomplish right now is to really be able to get enough data that can be presentable and continue to get people interested with this. I think that the collective effort of of us beyond just uh, in in certain Vedic uh, teachings, you know, some people that are concentrating on utilizing these frequencies for healing or for meditation or for these other kinds of things, which look at the, the, they have tremendous value this is this is something that I hope that modern day science can start giving real explanations and, and I mean for, for people that have looked into this and you can kind of see okay well how do these toroidal energy fields Thomas,
0: I have blown through the break at the top of the hour so everybody hold it there we're going to chop something out so it all fits into our broadcast schedule and there's no better way to do it than with uh, Karen Carpenter. You're on the other side of midnight My name is Richard C. Hoagland We're talking about ET communications And it's so easy To get lost In the subject We shall return Calling occupants Of interplanetary craft
9: Calling occupants of interplanetary, most extraordinary crap. Calling captain, of interplanetary craft, Calling captain, of interplanetary crap. Calling captain, of interplanetary, most extraordinary
8: craft
9: the Other Side is Midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk Radio at the Cutting Edge of Science and Thought. The Other Side of Midnight.com And We'd like to
8: make a contact with you. We are...
0: And welcome back, everyone, to the witching hour here in the land of enchantment. Damn, this subject is so interesting. You know, you, even if you're sitting here in the chair of the coast, you can get lost. Because the implications of what we're doing and who might be out there and who might be answering and who might resonate with our call are literally limitless. We are your friends. So last weekend we discussed, Tom, um, the composition of the message and you've composed a really brilliant summation of these sacred frequencies, these mathematical constants, these, you know, correlates to sacred sites all over the world. I wanna turn the conversation out to Maria because Maria, it seems to me since you're anchoring our intergalactic network uh, next friday morning that there should be something in the message unique to stonehenge so if you could recommend something to thomas which you can what would that be maria
3: Yes, well, there I'm going to are. have a think about yes, I'm going to have a think about that because uh, off the top of my head, I'd have to kind of really tune in to uh, to Stonehenge as well, and also about the ancestors that created it. I think that's very important to incorporate the past, the present, and the future. And as you know, Richard, it was the the elongated skull people that constructed Stonehenge. So maybe something about the ancestors.
0: Hmm. Well, we have some days. I mean, Tom is very good at composing this stuff. And, you know, tacking on another, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds won't really, you know, make any big difference. It's just I think it should be something that says as a signature, we know why this place is important.
2: Well, I think so. So very quickly, because I would like to sort of, you know, we're sort of in the last hour. And I know that I was sort of blabbing on there. But, um, you know, just continuing with what I was talking about. Um, you know, in terms of the geometric structure. This also relate. this structure also relates to energy flows from an atom to the energy flow of a planet to the energy flow of the solar system, the galaxy. So in terms of when we were talking about these networks of where the sacred sites are located, these are actually uh, focused on, if you you take a look at two sort of inverted uh, tetrahedrons, you know, in the, in the uh, uh, throughout the entire globe, okay? You can sort of tra- trace the toroid- to- uh, toroidal <laughs> energy flow sort of coming out and then back in. They seem to really be connected to where a lot of these ancient sites are. So I think, you know, if you take a look at the importance of the geometries of these uh, sacred sites, and you take a look at their positions on the globe, and that position being important in terms of where they're located in terms of the planetary energy field. Um, we're applying basically the same thing that the ancients were doing. So I think, you know, in terms of what we would like to incorporate into the signal from Stonehenge, um, you know, if, if there's some way of us being able to encode some type of, like, the location or some type, a, some type of a mathematical construct that's very unique, and may, Maria, if there's something that you know that, that sort of offhand can you know within the next couple of days, if it sort of jumps out at you, maybe incorporating a couple, you know, because this is where the originating you know the the next source of the transmission is going to come from. Um,
8: well, you know, remember
2: why we got to Stonehenge, and we got to Maria <clears throat> at the
0: prow of this ship boldly going where someone has gone before, because when we did the moon bounce, when Jimmy sent our transmissions to the moon. What David got back and correct me if I'm wrong, David was this puzzling number, which he couldn't understand 56. And to me, it was like, Oh my God, ding, ding, ding. That's the Aubrey holes at Stonehenge connecting a moon observatory on earth with the moon, which is in fact, uh, not quite natural hanging out in, in earth orbit placed there deliberately, to enhance the physics of the Earth a very long time ago. So to me, one of the things I would like to incorporate, maybe in a more elegant way, is the 56 of the original Phase One Stonehenge with the Blue Stones, now known as the empty sockets of the Aubrey Holes. What do you think, Maria?
3: Yes, I think that's a very good idea, actually, because, uh, you know, it is phase one, the most ancient part of Stonehenge that we are connecting with through that moon bounce. So I think it's very important, whether it's the diameter of the uh, Great Circle, because it was the largest stone circle as well at Stonehenge. It was, it was really a large stone circle. For that point in history, it was unprecedented.
0: Mm. Well, it's hundreds of feet across.
3: Yeah, it's about 280-some uh, feet across, whereas today Stonehenge is 108. So that's how big it was.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, I want to go to John now because, John, you've been very patient, waiting patiently to uh, kind of reveal a couple of things you've been working on. Uh, John, go ahead.
5: Sure. I, I have a, just a couple of regular items up. and. I want to add some more perspective to the conversation as far as instruments and musicians and the role they would have had in ancient times when it came to building pyramids, building Stonehenge. And in my view, musicians were held in the highest regard because they were creationists. They were engineers. They were they had medical skills like uh, we see today in the Tibetan meditation bowls that are used for uh, getting rid of ailments in your body and so forth. And I think in ancient times, the musicians were at the top of the list when it came to these sacred geometries and and creating things. And uh, so it's important for people to understand the Uh, impetus for tuning your guitar to 432 because it's not just a more relaxing sound you know if you, you watch some videos on YouTube it's like oh it's just a more natural sound but no it's much deeper than that as we've been talking about it's these are the underlying resonances of creation so back in the day in Stonehenge you would have had somebody I mean the guitar goes back to like the 13th century, but the precursors of the guitar go back to Noah and, and before, so they well, had...
0: you know what the oldest instrument is and Maria and I've discussed this Maria, you know, pick up on this because you and I've discussed an amazing experiment, which may be down the road, maybe phase four, phase five, whatever, where we get a whole choral group standing around and they're all singing these notes in unison in an intermixed choral harmonic crescendo and they cause the literal stones and the limestone and the quartz uh, to resonate from the well, human instrument.
2: But I think, yes. but I, think Richard, yes. what I think Richard, you see the important thing about the 432 hertz and because it is related so integrally to the golden ratio, like, um, you know, 432 hertz is considered the like the original harmonic intonation of nature and the whole universe so you know it's it's not just that it feels good when you listen to music that's tuned to 432 hertz because that is the original harmonic well, intonation well that's why it feels good Exactly. So I think, I think in, in the subsequent uh, experiment, I think, you know, broadcasting even the pure 432 hertz tone or, or something, you're going to, to, the vibrations are going to be amplified in these sacred sites, which, which we keep sort of referring back to as these natural.
0: Yeah, Maria, um, I, I have a feeling that, yeah. that English heritage would freak out if you came in with a huge bunch of speakers and amps. <laughs>
3: Let's do uh, I, I, think, I think they probably would, but let's do it. But I'd just like to go back to what Jonathan said, because I think he, he's adding something here about the musicians being very sacred, because in the ancient British tradition of Druidry, the bard, the, the poet, the musician, is held in high esteem in the Iron Age, which was an inherited tradition from the Bronze Age and, uh, and the Neolithic. So I think, yes, music held, and according to one of our most ancient manuscripts, the Welsh Triads. At Stonehenge, there were people singing 24 hours a day, it has been um, recorded and handed down in our historical text. The music was at the heart of Stonehenge. It's called the Perpetual Choir.
5: And when you look at the, if you go to uh, dictionary.com and you put in instrument It's a noun, a mechanical tool or implement used for delicate or precision work, as in surgical instruments. Uh, Number two is a contrivance or apparatus for producing musical sounds. So here you have the first two definitions listed. It's kind of one of the same because you they would have used these instruments and their voice. And intention, you have to add the intention to accomplish or create um, some desirable goal that they had. So when they constructed Stonehenge, the musician would have been the the lead guy on, on the project is, is what I'm thinking. So it's funny because this past Tuesday I decided to sit down and do something that I thought about For several years, I had a car accident in 2018, so I wasn't able to play my guitar for a few years, and I'm just getting back to that now. And so I sat down and and wrote a song, and what came out was a song called, (laughs) I was thinking of Maria, but um, the the working title is A Druid Life for Me, and I'm collaborating with uh, Scott DeTamble one of uh, our previous guests who's a musician. And I thought about uh, checking in with Michael, checking in with you too, to see if you'd like to collaborate on this and do a, a really cool Stonehenge song.
0: Amazing. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Oh, what Did an you? idea. Hey, you guys remember, of course, the most Brilliant. famous poet of all. In a, in a play he wrote um, in 1697 called The Morning Bride. Is a character who says an immortal line, "Music has charms to soothe a savage breast." I mean, come on, it's all there. Hey, Richard. Okay. Speaking of mind-blowing, Michael, um, I,
6: I, uh, Maria, I want to save
0: the dynamic stuff on where you are with your e- equipment toward the end, but since Michael is going to be doing the same experiment as listening listening only in this place called crystal springs in florida and he just got his radio i think michael you should take us through till the bottom of the hour where it is what its history is what they recently discovered connecting it to the maya and what you're going to be doing on the morning in british time when maria's in stonehenge there in crystal springs
4: Right on. Uh, This is history in the making as well. Um, I've been to all kinds of mounds because I was brought into the Star Knowledge family. was put together the Star Knowledge Conferences by Chief Golden Light Eagle, which was the Native American First Nation elders, chiefs, grandmothers, finally starting to share their information of thousands of years with star Beans, And our work just went live in Canada. By the way, you can type in Star Knowledge and University of Ottawa, and you'll find that our teachings are now being taught. And we did a show for them called Star Beans. But anyhow, uh, I met my beloved at uh, Serpent Mound during the full totality eclipse of 2017, and we've not been... This is in Ohio. Uh, that was in Ohio, um, but I, we've not been separatable since then, and I moved to Florida to be with her, and she is of the Navajo um, bloodline. And the first place she took me was Crystal River Mayan Mound Complex. And there's many mounds there. And man, the energy is just mind-blowing. The biggest, uh, matter of fact, I should say, uh, if you go to my items uh, at the website, other side of midnight, um, there's actually photographs of these. The first photograph is just to get right into the deep end. Um, They just found a Mayan step pyramid in Florida because this is the first location of this bloodline who is truly the remnants of the Atlanteans and became known as the Nephilim in the Bible. And, uh, they went to the Mayan culture first, you know, even the Mayan culture said, Hey, some big white guy showed up and showed us how to build these pyramids and gave us the Mayan calendar and whatnot. Well, um, Somewhere down the line, darkness started to set in. Blood sacrifice started to set in. The elders said, let's get the hell out of Dodge. And what you'll find is if you put your canoe in the Yucatan, it pretty much takes you straight to the middle of Florida um, on the left-hand side. And it's Crystal River, Florida. So they already knew that there was this Mayan complex. And they knew it was Mayan because the mounds have – you know, astrological alignments for solstices and equinoxes and whatnot. But uh, if anyone's interested in this, it's actually a TV show. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a TV series called Unexplained and Unexplored. And they had tracked down the Mayan elders to Florida. And they said, well, listen, this place has all the attributes of a Mayan settlement. There should be a Mayan step pyramid, if that's the case. And it should be along this line. But that's Took them right out in the Crystal River, and uh, but over on the other side of the river is uh, private land owned by Florida. No trespassing, and they said, "Well, we can put up a ground penetrating radar." Uh, drone, you know, LIDAR and and see if we can find anything. Well, sure enough, they found it and they said it's actually some of the best ground penetrating radar uh, footage that they found. The different colors on that first photograph is the different heights and you can see, uh, you know, the dimensions, it's pretty big. So, someone's got some explaining to do why there is a Mayan step pyramid in Florida. And it's really interesting because, you know, we've spoken about the, the importance of the word morning star and what it means. Well, you'll find the first, the Mayan star, the Mayan symbol for the morning star was called the Lamat, And it's part of um, the Mayan calendar. And if you look it up, it means Venus, the morning star. Venus is not, it's just metaphor, you know, for the Mayan culture and going back to Sumer, you know, the picture of Inki, he had a sphere with the morning stars, like a four-pointed uh, compass symbol. Um, uh, it it was a time marker between the age of Pisces and the age of Aquarius. It was the end of a dark age and the beginning of a new golden age. It was the phoenix. So it was very important to them because it marked this ending of this time of darkness, and um, so, if you viewed the timeline of the precessional cycle, but by the way, when I met the Anunnaki, they told me our succession of kingship and how we relate to mankind is totally based on the precessional cycle, and that's why it was so important to me, Richard, because you plugged that the data in for me and I didn't understand that the precessional cycle is truly four thirty two based numbers and I think <laughs> you know, even Graham Hancock, he's like, Man, the precessional cycle is encoded everywhere. Well, unless you're a musician, you're not gonna get that man, these are cosmic harmonious frequencies. But anyhow, Crystal River is the first site of the Morning Star in the North American continent. And one of the grandmothers uh showed me the migration route of the Nephilim uh and came in right at the left side of Florida, exited the top left-hand side of Florida, and made three uh, candy canes with the hoop going to the left. And she said these truly became the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota uh, tribes, and the Dakota has kept their star knowledge the most. Um, but on the right-hand path of migration, you got the Cherokee, you got Iroquois, I am almost pure blood Seneca on my mother's side. Um, So all these different bloodlines, and this is where haplogroup X2A comes in because it's only in these Native American First Nations. And um, these are the ones that was encoding this exact same information of cosmic harmonious frequency. And, um, you know, I did post a picture of the effects of 432 on water, and you can see municipal tap water on the top and, um, you know, water that's been placed on a 432 disk. I think that really explains man. It's the first scientific proof that when you tune to these frequencies, it brings through photonic light energy, it's not debatable, you know, a picture is worth a million words, but that's why uh, I am taking the radio to um, crystal river because of its importance in the future. Um, and I did look at the uh, the moonrise, and it's at 9.45, so it will not be even an issue. Some of the other pictures that I've shared
0: is of Temple Mound at that same... No, wait, but when you say moon, you mean on the 4th? Yes. So it's at 9-something in the morning. Yes. One on, on what morning? Friday morning? On the 4th. Yeah, because Maria, remember, is going to be up at 8 o'clock British time, which is like, I think, 1 or two o'clock in the morning, your time, I think. It's five hours uh, difference.
4: Well, we'll make sure and confirm, because I took a screenshot of the you know the moon rise and uh, fall, and we'll make sure I'm there at the right time. But um, one other thing I want to bring up is, you know, one of the Native American grandmothers, it's a weird story, but she walked up and she had the, what I now know is called the floral dully, that symbol on her arm, and she said, everyone here... And she pointed up, she said, is of the bloodline. And she pointed to that Florida de Lis symbol on her forearm. And she said to see you being recognized as Inky, as Ia. And um, I thought, well, that's odd, you know. And later on, I went and asked her. I wanted to see it. And she said, what tattoo? I said, well, the one you just showed me, you know. She said, Michael, I don't have a tattoo. And um, sure enough, she did not have a tattoo on her arm. And, um, that so really,
0: which parallel universe did you visit?
4: Right. I uh, You know, I got to talk to one of the grandmothers a few years ago, and, like, after the fact, and I finally got to ask someone. Like, I told her that story, and before I was done, she had Chief Golden White Eagle's book called uh, 1111 uh, Star Knowledge, Star Symbols, and she had it open to the chapter called Future Sight. And she said, Michael, your DNA is being activated, and we don't have the words to tell you how to process it because no one else is like you're one of the first to experience it she said i have future sight as well but i don't know when it's going to manifest into
0: the future so wait, wait. she was saying that she doesn't have the tattoo now but sometime in the future in this timeline she will
4: yeah and uh matter of fact she said you know it's really weird that you said mm-hmm. you've seen that because I plan on getting it. And I've seen her again in the future, and she did have the tattoo um, on her forearm. So, But the point is, this Florida Lee tattoo, there's no doubt in my mind, this is their symbol for their bloodline on this planet. It's not even debatable to me. And so I go into the museum for this Native American First Nation mound site in Crystal River, Florida, and uh, i got a photograph of it. I'm walking out the back door to go to Temple Mound, and there's a flora the lee
0: on the museum. Oh, that's, no, that's at in number three.
4: Yeah. So instantly I'm like, why is no one asking
0: why there's a flora <laughs> the lee
4: on a Native American mound site, you know? And um, so, yeah, it's going to be very instrumental. And not only that, as we talked about, I'm going to be there a couple times, and and – Sometime in the very near future, I began work with the Mitchell Hedges Crystal Skull. So I'm uh, yeah, I'm going to do this first one and keep science intact and do the exact same transmission we've used. But sometime in the future, I'm going to be bringing the Mitchell Hedges Crystal Skull there with me and my radio. So I have one hand on the crystal skull and uh, the other hand on the radio. And um, boy, by the way. I'm involved with a new uh, documentary on the Mitchell Hedges crystal skull. And um, the the director is Ruben Langdon. Some of you might be. I know, David, you're familiar with him. But he contacted me, and he's really excited. He goes, Michael, we just interviewed this psychic medium medicine woman in New York. Her name is Emily Ra. And she had a session with the skull. And at the end of it, he said, did the skull give you any message to give to mankind? And she said, yes, it showed me a seven-pointed star and the words (laughs) morning star. (laughs) That that toasted my noodle, man. Holy cow.
0: What what came first? Okay, Okay. I don't don't want to blow blow past this break because it makes editing really hard and people are very unhappy when I do that. So we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's pause here. In this last half hour, we're going to ask Ron why he's so silent and quiet because he's normally not silent and quiet. Uh, maybe he has some unusual thoughts about what he's heard for the...
6: Because for my the phone's party. muted.
0: We're going to go to Maria to talk about the technique of uh, doing what she's doing. Thomas has update us on a few additional things that he's worked on. I think John has some frequencies he wanted to play. And my God, there's not enough time in three hours to get it all in. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
9: Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
0: back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, now Sunday morning, here in the Land of Enchantment. Uh, Ron is first silence. So I'm going to go directly to Ron and say, Ron, what are your thoughts on hello? what's been transpiring so far and what is to come?
6: Hello, hello, can you hear me? Reason Ron, quiet un- is that, can you hear me now? I'm unmuted.
0: Have we lost Ron? Hello?
6: Just sometimes
0: communication is very difficult. I think we may have lost. I'm here. Ron. Okay. No, so Michael, didn't. let me let me ask you a, a pragmatic question. Oh, I'm sorry. It's my fault. I have the pot down. There you are, Ron. <laughs> sorry. There's too many switches in this control room. Go for it. Ron? Mr. Gerbron, you're on the air. I don't hear Ron, even though the pot is up. Well, okay, let's go back to Michael. Uh, Michael, have you checked out, it's going to be three o'clock in the morning for you uh, when it is um, um, 8 a.m. For, for Maria in Stonehenge. Have you checked out how you can get into the complex?
4: Well, we're going to have to confirm that because I do, I have the moon phases and it says it's like in the morning. That would not be
0: an issue. No, 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 at no, all. no, 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 The moon has nothing to do with this. Oh, for, I thought you
4: asked me for No, the moon no. Those
0: has. are two separate experiments. Ah, two totally separate okay. experiments. No. The idea is to be in Crystal River listening and recording what the radio is picking up on these two mm-hmm. channels, 144.1 and 432, <laughs> as Maria is transmitting from Stonehenge a quarter of the way around the planet. And it's going to be three Uh, o'clock in the morning for you when it's eight o'clock in the morning for her, when she can get in and she's got an hour. So uh, no,
4: I can't. uh, It's closed. Okay. So
0: then the question is, can you get to the parking lot? Yes. Because the parking lot will be as good as being anywhere in the complex, which Robin and I proved by picking up with the Accutron, the, Uh, torsion field emanations from the Kukulkan Pyramid at Chichen Itza five miles away. These things were designed to enhance the physics and the consciousness and the biofields of people far away from the center of the site itself. So even if you can't physically get and sit on top of a pyramid, which you can do later with a moonrise, um. Mm -hmm you will be able to go to the parking lot and be within a few hundred feet of this complex, including the, uh, the Mayan step pyramid across the river.
4: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, now let's go to Thomas. Thomas, what have we missed that you wanted to uh, show us tonight?
2: Um, I don't think we've really missed anything. I think... Um, Didn't you have you know, some, we're, we're... some
0: frequencies or tones or new analysis you wanted to run?
2: no, I haven't done any new analysis. Um, you know, really the focus this week was really to, to be able to, to sort of, uh, condense, um, some of the rationale behind this. Um, because I can't, I can't reiterate this enough. Like, you know, if there's one thing that we're trying to achieve with this, with this experiment is really to be able to do this with, um, you know, as much of the scientific method as we can. I mean, this is a grassroots effort, obviously. Um, but you know, I think there's you know some quite deep um, logic behind uh, behind the collective efforts. Um, I think that this next, the subsequent experiment, is going to be interesting because we're going to be having people that are located um, geographically really, really far distances apart from each other. Um, and this is sort of the hope is that as we sort of do these subsequent transmissions, um, that that sort of that organize that level of global organization um, gets perceived and and really in terms of us being able to get other data that we can further analyze and be able to come up with uh, a collection of evidence and interesting sort of oddities in that data to really be able to garner the attention of more and more people and obviously that are coming from different disciplines and have access to different resources to really be able to further refine um, these communication attempts. Um, Because from what, I mean, from, from my knowledge, I mean, I don't know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that there has been um, too many collective efforts Um, in terms of trying to establish this type of – whether it be interspatial, interdimensional, whatever (laughs) – whatever you want to call the, the, the communication attempt. So, um, you know, really that's what I'm excited about. I mean, I, I, I feel it coming together. Um, I I think, you know, getting, getting other people involved with it um, that are coming from their own respective backgrounds and, and, and able to get access to some of these sites. I mean, as this sort of grows, I mean, you can feel the energy amplifying and then we're going to use these natural, um, you know, ancient sites and, and these natural, energetic amplifiers to really start dialing things in and i mean the moment that we can i mean look at what look at what a radio frequency <laughs> that that was received from a far far off place um how 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 extensive that got covered um you know that's something that was read and and people have have sort of been made aware of this all over the world
0: and they have no so, idea what's really contained In this radio source, yet.
2: Well, but I mean, in all fairness, neither do we, right? I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, we're... Well,
0: well, 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 let me me push back. Yes, we do. Those narrowband frequencies cannot be natural. They cannot be natural, particularly at 144. Come
2: on. Well, no, and I mean the thing is, is that again, I mean, what I'm hoping, I mean, I, I think that you very eloquently put it um, in the last couple of episodes that we're trying to tap into this this natural sort of superhighway, this uh, of, of communications, right? And and that's that's kind of my hope out of this. So, I mean, so far so good. I I, I would really like to. I think you know I've taken some great notes. Um, you know, as it stands right now, the, the, the tone frequency that we've uh, compiled, which I think has some really interesting uh, mathematical constants, um, I think we're going to refine that this week. And I think, you know, the, the last part of that tone was really indicating the, uh, the pyramids of Giza. Uh, Because that was one of the the things that was identified, you know, and people can listen to last last week's episode to sort of see how we were able to to, uh, incorporate these mathematical ratios into the frequencies. So I think, you know, what's come out of this is that we really want to be able to kind of prioritize um, encoding. Uh, some sort of a reference very specific to Stonehenge. Mm. Um, But again, I think, you know, at this point, um, you know, where there's going to be listeners, I think it's maybe important that we encode um, some type of a, whether it's Latin longs or some type of a way for us to encode into the tones uh, where people are going to be listening. Um, that, I think, is going to be kind of an interesting thing because, you know, as, as we saw from the previous transmissions, we were receiving interesting data that wasn't necessarily emanating from the sources that, were, that, that the original transmissions were d- directed to. Um, oh, that, of- that is the perfect segue.
0: So let me go to Maria first. Give mm-hmm. us a kind of a thumbnail sketch where you are with the equipment, what we are waiting on, in addition to Thomas's uh, briefing book.
3: Uh, yeah, I haven't got Thomas' briefing book yet, but the, all, most of the equipment I've got and I've got an Amazon delivery today of the last piece. So I will have everything ready by today, actually. It's, it's coming today, so I'm really looking uh, forward to that uh, and going to the uh, actual areas where the uh, earth energies are as well as the lays. I think that's uh, that's very important. So it, I'm good to go pretty soon. Wow. I'd also like to point out about phase one of uh, Stonehenge, the 56 uh, number. The, some of the stones were dismantled from another stone circle in Wales called Wine Morn and transported here as well as new stones. So I'm gonna, I know exactly where those old stones are from uh, Wine Morn, and this is recent information coming out of University College London. And i am also be by the original stones, the oldest there at Stonehenge.
0: Wow. Huh. Okay. Um... Let me see. Ron, do we have Ron with us? Ron. That is so weird because everything here is working and he's not. Oh, well, Uh, Ron, if you join us again, if you're listening, uh, you know, break in with something that you might want to contribute. It's sometimes, you know, hard to keep track of everyone when they are very, very quiet. Uh, We are not a quiet crowd.
6: Hi, Keith. There you are. I've been there the whole time. You had me potted down on your board.
0: Then you should have said something to Keith so I could pot you up. That's that's the danger well, yeah. of coming in. Keith on...
6: figured it out. Keith figured it out. But
0: um... <laughs> well, see, that's the one I do the promos on, so I pop them down when I'm doing other things. So anyway, stupid
6: housekeeping. It, it's okay. Yes, I I did have a couple thoughts on the 432 um, Enigma. The um... Well, and I guess you already covered that 144 hertz is the natural frequency of the sun, according to the folks at JPL. No, we didn't bring that up. Oh, okay. Well, there's another 144 for you. But if anybody out there that's listening is curious about this stuff, uh, one of my favorite places, Bandcamp, if you go to Bandcamp, uh, you can type in 432 as a search term and you 'll get pages and pages and pages and pages of albums and uh, various collections of things that are tuned to four thirty two instead of four forty mm.
5: yeah Which imagine pa- if everyone in the
6: world tuned their instrument to four thirty two and struck the <laughs> well global chord. well here's the well here 's <laughs> the problem here 's the problem uh, you can tune a piano that way you can tune a guitar that way but you can't tune a flute, or the woodwinds a, are. There.
4: Actually, you can make it where it's Native it. American Indian flutes are
6: 432 and 440. Well, yeah, you could make a flute for that, yeah. But I'm saying about playing it. For instance, if you want to hear a whole orchestral piece, Mozart used 432. So if you find one of those albums of uh, Mozart played on classic instruments, as they say, that's what they had to do because then all the supporting instruments were also tuned. That way. I
5: think and his most recent past life was from the future, was the feeling I had with Mozart. Didn't oh. didn't
0: he compose the magic flute? Well, yeah, that was an opera. But yeah. but
6: why was it magic? Well, because he was into all sorts of mystical
2: stuff. It was
0: symbolic. And, and... It was symbolic of the physics.
2: Well, the Catholic Church it was this was a concerted effort to change uh music tuning to four forty Hertz. I mean this is these were attempts to sort of shift people away from from these these natural to and detune human their consciousness. Vibrations. So they're no
0: longer connected. Well,
2: exactly. well it didn't change until nineteen thirty six
6: and that was somebody here in America named Schieber. That convinced everybody that this was uh, this was a good idea. How do you do that? It, it, uh, i I wasn't quite there yet no <laughs> yeah, i was just that was li- that's a little early for me Uh-oh. but uh, it was uh not much but uh, a little uh i don't know uh that's uh if you want an in depth analysis of four thirty two versus four forty that doesn't have any uh native populations or things like that in it uh, I could put one together but it's uh yeah it's been chased around all through history i mean it, it dates back to Pythagoras. Uh, who decided that he wanted to catalog the musical scales.
8: Hmm. And he
6: had something, I think, called the monotune, which was sort of a zither-looking sort of thing. And, um, but the Schieber guy had something that was called a, I forget, something else that sounds like it would be the, the, the name of some phantasmic um, instrument, and it's basically rows and rows and rows of separate little tuning forks. So I'm not quite sure how he played it or what he did with it, but mm. it was, uh, this was how he demonstrated it. But Sounds the, like um, a modern Gobekli Tepe. Okay, look,
0: I'm going to exercise uh, ruthless control because I want to save a little time here for Tonga. Tonga I've been looking at, David and I were looking at, the thing that really intrigued me about Tonga was um, it's sitting exactly – to three significant figures at 20.6 latitude. 20.6. Now, David has related it to the royal qubit that he's figured out is 20.601, but we can't do that because you drop off the two decimals because we only have, you know, three-place uh, accuracy. So Tonga is, the explosion was at 20.6, but it came in like two weeks before Tonga. Now why is that important? Well, if you go to my items, remember click on fast links Richard uh under the banner on the on the guest page, go to item number 4, that's the Japanese satellite that captured the explosion just before sunset, gorgeous view of the earth there, a repeating gif showing the the uh explosion breaking the ocean, the shock wave racing out at uh, almost 700 miles an hour, then number Five is another view of the shockwave from another satellite and processing. Number six is a discussion of the fact that this darn thing was unprecedented. They're now thinking of coining a whole term, a Tonga-like volcanic explosion underwater. Uh, It's not going to work because it's one of a kind and you're going to see why. Then you skip down to number eight, Tonga taken by uh, one of the NOAA GOES satellites looking straight down. This is a wide angle. It's right after the explosion. The eruption has just broken the surface of the water. Now you go to number nine. This is an enlargement and look what we see. It's not a spherical detonation wave like in dynamite or nuclear weapons or any explosions. The damn thing breaks the surface as a cube. Wait for it. Item number 10. Compare the Tonga explosion at the moment right after detonation to the five die of a pair of dice. There are five markings on the surface of this Tonga cube as it broke the ocean and they mimic exactly the geometric pattern of a five in a pair of dice. What could five and a cube mean? Well, five, of course, is the symbolic number for humankind, for humanity, for man. Now you go to number 11. This is a surface video taken uh, a few miles away uh, on a boat. Uh, The guys were incredibly lucky to have survived. It is the cube breaking the water with the steam that came up earlier forming a backdrop. Number 12 is the combination, uh, I'm sorry, 13 is the combination of the satellite view and the surface view, and then you go back to 12. And of course, the cube is two intertwined tetrahedra, which is the 27 lines on the general cubic surface in other words there's been no radioactivity detected so this was not a nuclear weapon this was not russia or china or somebody privately who detonated a nuke just because they had nothing better to do it was someone who did it precisely at 20 degrees south latitude because that number showed up two weeks earlier in our responses the Amuamua transmissions as being part of a sacred geometry inclusive of David's discovery that that in fact is the ancient Egyptian royal cubit so someone in the Tonga event did this deliberately either as a demonstration of incredible awesome power, a power play by someone off earth to those who control earth on earth or someone eradicating an ancient part of the sacred site network which a long time ago maybe millions of years ago had been placed underwater at this location which is why the volcano was triggered to erupt there etc cetera, etc cetera, or none of the above the, the point is This Tonga explosion says direct in its own geometry that hyperdimensional physics was used to create an energy release, which has never been seen by mainstream geologists in any other volcano before. And that obviously is some kind of profound message. I know what it is. Anybody have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I have the message. Take 280 cubits, the height of the Great Pyramid, and note that the Tonga location is the cubit, the royal cubit. Now, divide 280 cubits by five. What do you get? I don't know.
0: 56? That means you get Stonehenge. Exactly. (laughs) Holy
6: criminy. 280 (laughs) cubits. Does somebody have an and elephant, the or
1: does on your dice? There's the five on your dice. You get
2: fifty-six. I mean, maybe this is maybe you know, just as a nuclear explosion care. is like the smashing of a smashing of an atom. Um, you know, some of the theories on on Atlantis being destroyed by some type of like an energy release.
0: Well, I think I know technically how this was done, but we don't have time to get into the physics of it. But it's not nuclear because if it was nuclear, we'd be seeing radioisotopes all over the world. Every nation and every advanced nation, first world nation, would be sending up sniffer planes and the AEC, the old AEC would be reporting radionuclides, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing like that has been detected. So this was a massive nuclear weapons level, maybe 30 megaton equivalent explosion without shattering a single atom amazing and 56 times five is the height of the great
1: pyramid and then you which in cubits when you when you do the 280 cubits and also the holy of holies in the dead sea scrolls the temple scroll was 280 cubits for the holy of holies courtyard
0: so okay let me ask you mr sarita what gave you what gave you the brilliant insight to take the five geometry which is obvious there in the satellite image and divide it into the Great Pyramid's height in cubits.
1: Well, I'm, I got numbers jumping through my head like jumping <laughs> beans.
0: <laughs> By the way, in the later sequence of satellite imagery, you can actually see that the cube rotates so that one of the points of the tetrahedra is straight up.
1: Right, and I, I did, see that.
0: I did not have time to put that up there, but it's clear That this is telling us something much bigger because, you know, for years, I've been puzzling about a Terry mystery. I've looked at thousands of images of Mercury, asteroids, the moon, Mars, etc., etc., and there are two forms of craters. There's circular craters caused by a big splat, you know, the release of energy when something hits like an asteroid or a large meteor whatever. And then there are hexagonal craters where literally the edge, the rim, is has the straight segments of a hexagon exactly like the huge atmospheric hexagon at the North Pole of Saturn, which I know is, is the physics. So I've been looking for the mechanism that would create hexagonal craters, and obviously those are craters created by hyperdimensional Technology, not natural impacts, which is a testament all over the solar system to this incredible, huge, ancient, interplanetary great war that wound us up tonight trying to piece together who the hell we are and what we're doing here.
2: Well, it's interesting that the hexagon, the, the hexagon is 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 basically again. I mean, it's related back to this 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 hyperdimensional structure. Yep. And it's represented in ancient symbolism. Look at the Star of David. <laughs> the Star of David is is basically, you know, a, a form of sacred geometry as well. So, I mean, these these symbols have been encoded and and used and worshipped by different cultures geographically geographically in, in completely different places and yet there is this uniting geometry and that is the foundation of, of what we're trying to do with these communications. Yeah. I think Solomon's ring had
5: that symbol on it um, yeah, you I know the Star did. of David yeah. because that that was a piece of technology I believe the ring of Solomon it held the genies um, they helped him build the temple and the seal of Solomon Yes, the Seal yes. of Solomon. Yeah.
2: Yep. Well, what is well, the current? Say, hang uh, on,
0: hang on, hang on. What's the current Israeli flag? Come on, guys.
2: The Star of David.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I've the Star talked of to David Stan.
1: Is the five, which is times the fifty-six, is the two hundred and eighty <laughs> cubits. So for the height of the pyramid and the courtyard of the Holy of Holies in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you. Do you see the connection now between the pyramid and Stonehenge?
0: Which Maria just happens to be going to visit next month. Maria, I, I want you to kind of wrap this yes, up because this whole message comes back to you, to Stonehenge, and to your role a week minus a day from tonight.
3: Yes, I mean, the, the Star of David is also the symbol of the heart chakra as well. So I just thought I, I'd add that in rather than being technical. We can come from feeling as well. So yes, so when uh, when I'm at Stonehenge, I'm going to be starting off from the buried stone, if you remember, and then moving my way around. But English Heritage have just got in contact with me last week. They now have to give us a 15-minute spoon-fed Inaccurate archaeological spiel, so I won't be able to go in until after that talk, which we have to attend now.
0: So is that part of your hour it'll that you paid 8:15. for? Yes.
3: So, yes.
0: So they basically so eight
3: fifteen.
0: So they're cheating you on fifteen minutes.
3: Mm. Yes.
0: Oh, they're terrible. Okay. Um,
3: it, it, we will obviously protocol.
0: yeah. We will obviously discuss. There'll be more than enough time to do what we're doing. So I'm not worried, you know.
3: Yes, I'm not.
0: Okay, we've got two minutes till the end of the show. Anything we have missed?
3: Well, I think (laughs) the.
6: Boy,
0: I love that. All right, Ron has not said much tonight. So Ron, what (laughs) what do we miss? I just,
6: I just have one question. I'm sorry. Who was that that brought their elephant with them? Somebody was, there was, I guess they were blowing their nose in the background. I could hear you were talking and then somebody else. We
0: don't want to go there. Good grief, Ron. No,
6: I know, but I was trying to figure how do you tell this person to mute it while they're blowing their nose. It did sound like a small elephant, though, so that (laughs) that was counterbalancing. But I don't think I heard that.
0: I don't think, I do not want to end, I don't want to end on an elephant note. Thomas. When can we have the briefing document to send to the entire team?
2: Well, I think I, I think uh, David, Keith, and I can sort of put together the, the the foundation of it. Again, we want to be able to. I, I think what we're going to probably do is is do a public document that people can be listening in, because again, we're sort of wanting to, you know, put an invitation out there for people to be tuning into some of these frequencies with some of their own rigs as well. Um, so I think there'll be a public facing document. And then I think, you know, depending on what the tech, you know, the technology that each person is sort of working with uh, right now, we're concentrating on getting Maria uh, comfortable with her little setup with what she's going to be able to use on her site. Um, so we're going to be dealing with this early, early this week. Um, yeah. We needed to sort of we needed to know specific equipment and things like that. So okay um, to take
0: us out theme music I want to thank my guests this morning Ron and David and Thomas and John and Keith and Maria and uh, Who am I missing? Uh, Michael Michael cannot miss Michael Michael brilliant tour de force. I now know so much more than I did three hours ago Now, tomorrow night, we're shifting gears somewhat. We're going to talk about Ukraine with our favorite starian, Dr. Richard Spence. Don't miss that because in a weird way, it could be related. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.